I don't want to go to a kid's party. Listening to Weird Things Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, Clint Eastwood on the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Things Network, now on Podbean. So, good evening, and welcome to the seventh episode of the eleventh season of Weird Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, who sounds like he's vacuuming over there, <laughs> as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So, again, tonight uh, we are going to be talking about Clint Eastwood. Uh, was there something you had to say? It sounded like you were going to jump in. <laughs> I was laughing. Vacuuming? That's vacuum? what it sounds like, yeah. It's like, I don't know if it's your air conditioner or a fan or what. Oh, wait, 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 wait. I will shut this off and sweat for you people. Hold on. <laughs> Brave man. <laughs> Is that better? Yeah, that sounded like you were in a military operation. I was like, what the hell's going on over there? <laughs> Yes, yes, I shut I shut off my AC, so I will. Yeah. So yeah. make sure you have a lot of ice in those martinis. <laughs> yeah, a lot of ice. Yeah. I know they say not to do that, but I wine I will not drink if it's not chilled. I know it's supposed to aerate so it gets the head and all that. Nah, blow me. <laughs> drink a nice, cool, chilled wine, and I'm happy. I like I like a nice ice cube now. And this this came up in the past when I met ladies in the past and went over to the place they always had vodka, good vodka, in the freezer. And I was like, I used to think I was totally unaware of it. I'm like, really? And why do single women know about this? <laughs> and I tried it and I was just like, you know what? I just took one ice cube in and put a couple of ounces in and I'm healthy. I like drinks cold, even to kill. Yeah, same here. I will not drink a warm drink. I won't even drink warm water if you think, okay, I take a pill or something. Nah, it's got to be something cold. <laughs> It's like, yeah, I don't want any great shit. So anyway, <laughs> that stuff aside. What a show this is going to be. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so here we go. Clint Eastwood Jr. was born in Frisco. How I love you, how I love you, how I love you, how I love you, Frisco. For all you Zappa fans. To a pan-UK family, British, Irish, and Scotch. To a pair of rich fucks. You know that gorgeous seaside spread in Carmel from Play Misty for me? Yeah. That's his town, if not his own place, and he used to live in a place with an in-ground pool and frequent a country club as a kid. It explains his politics right there. So apparently he was a fuck-up like Brett Kavanaugh, one of those jock jokesters that barely passes while running a file of peers in administration for pulling hazing-style pranks and such. Some sources actually claim he never even graduated high school. He got drafted into the Korean War, but like Elvis, never saw a lick of combat. He was apparently a lifeguard at Fort Ord for his entire stint in the military, according to one of his exes. Yep, all the chips are lining up, so much for that tough guy image. While at Fort Ord, he made acquaintance with some guy who knew folks in Hollywood and snuck him on set, where a cameraman friend of said fellow got Clinton audition, where they said they liked his looks, but he was a horrible actor. So they put him under contract and sent him to drama school. And apparently, they said his acting sucked. (laughs) 
<laughs> so he failed a few editions after that, but was finally granted his first walk-on roles in a pair of memorably cheesy science fiction films in the 50s from the same director, The Revenge of the Creature from the Black Lagoon and Tarantula. You'll mm. notice him in the background as a lab tech in the former. It's very obvious, but I don't remember him at all in the latter. Apparently he was in the airline pilot or something. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, no, he's memorable in that. Well, you know, he... He was a bit player. He's just you know, showing up for a second. He's a bit player, but you know, when he was young, for a long time, he had striking looks. Oh yeah, no, he looked the same for many years. He was, you know, yeah, yeah. If, if you think he was a good-looking guy back when, he was a good-looking guy then. So yeah, yeah, and I, I think that was the thing that got him cast. Yes, that was the <laughs> thing that attracted the studios. Uh, like you just said, you know, they they wanted to put him. On the contract, but like you should fucking act. We're sending the acting school now. It's not working. <laughs> but he's still really good looking, you know. And you know, probably different with Tom Cruise. But let, let's let's just say I'm not making a connection here. But just let's be theoretical here. If Tom Cruise couldn't fucking act at all, and he has, he has shown that he can. But I'm saying if he couldn't act at all, he he would have went through the same thing. They would have put him under contract, like oh, put him in the background. Put him. Yeah, this guy's still looking, but you know. How about the early Brad Pitt? Remember, he was just like a lunk showing up to stuff like Thelma and Louise? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And other things around that time period. But that brought him notice, though, because oh, yeah. he, he wound up being really interesting. Yeah. I was going to say, though, within a year of his venture into Hollywood, he got shit-canned after all that. So now he found an agent and started getting a bit of, uh, actually a lot of bit player work on TV Westerns, yes. which was then something of a ghetto for starving actors. I mean, young folks nowadays might see TV as a much bigger, more respectable thing than it used to be. But right through the early 80s, believe it or not, TV actors were considered somewhat of a joke in Hollywood and very much looked down upon by film people, critics, and to some extent the general populace. It was considered déclassé in the last refuge of the washed up and the also rans. Mm. So he lucked out when Rawhide became a hit. And more so when his co-star turned down an offer to star in an Italian Western. And of all people, Richard Harrison, best known these days for his work with one of the more famed of the dozen or so Bruce Lee clones of the era, Bruce Lay, and Challenge of the Tiger, and a subsequent run of cheap-ass Euro ninja films in the 80s, suggested using fellow Rawhide star Eastwood instead. Of course, this film was a fistful of dollars from Sergio Leone. Three films with Leone and a five-film run of Dirty Harry pretty much defines the man, though he made several decent pictures, many of which were major hits, throughout the 70s and to a lesser extent the 80s, which made him something of an icon. More interestingly, most of his films were produced by Clint himself. You'll notice that Malpaso Productions on just about everything he ever starred in. And in short order, he began to direct many of them as well. To some very mixed results, as we'll say. Mm-hmm. He's also quite literally a crazy bastard. <laughs> Working the right-wing politics you'd expect from not only his upbringing, but the guy behind the openly racist and authoritarian Dirty Harry, most infamously stumping as a last-minute surprise fill-in speaker at the RNC in 2012, where he gave a hilarious impromptu empty chair debate with an imaginary President Obama, actually quoting Dirty Harry lines, running back and forth like a fool, and pretending to be a tough guy, implying that his invisible opponent was cursing at him and calling him outside. If you haven't seen it, look it up. It's so absurd and embarrassing. You're going to laugh your ass off. Or, if you're a diehard fan of the man, you're going to cringe in sympathetic empathy for his obvious rampant senility at that point. That said, he's enough of an old-school Republican to have some distaste for Trump and his obnoxious antics, actually leaving the party, like you mentioned earlier. He's now considered a libertarian. And he's stumping for Bloomberg, or he did stump for Bloomberg, in the 2020 election against the mega cult leader. He may be crazy, but he's not crazy enough to be a Republican anymore. <laughs> So, what were you going to say earlier? I I, I, I don't know. Um, well, you're talking about how he's an interesting guy, so. No, no, I, I always thought he was an interesting guy. You know, he's, he actually, they even put him in a few musicals. 
background. He didn't do singing until later on, uh, pretty famously. <laughs> or infamously. But hey, you know what? The guy, the guy his co-star, you know, he's, he wasn't a singer either. But he also was off-Broadway, Broadway, uh, uh, what did they call them back then? You know, when they had the uh, male chorus. You know, so, uh, hey... Possible back in the 60s. Hey, if Pierce Brosnan could sing that badly in Mamma Mia, then Clint Eastwood could sing that badly in Paint Your Wagon. <laughs> oh, but I have a soft spot to, for Pierce. Yeah, well, I, I love Pierce, was, but he was a horrible singer. He was flat. He was flat. They tried, and he knew it. To his credit, he knows he was terrible. So. Yeah, yeah. They tried, they tried to... Uh, I kind of got the feel they tried to order it to him, but... Uh, yeah. Didn't work. <laughs> I'm so happy to see that guy, Pierce Brosnan, actually being uh, the Justice Society. Really? In Black Adam. Oh, I didn't see that yet. Did, it, did that come out yet? I thought it was just... No, it didn't come out yet, but they just released the newest trailer on Friday, mm -hmm. yesterday. And it's a lot more about the Justice Society oh, cool. than it is about Black... And he's Dr. Fate. I, and... I was just going to ask that. You know, I have a picture of me from when I was like six years old. And mm -hmm. my mother's like, okay, what Halloween costume do you want me to make? Because she actually, used, in those days, used to make people costumes. And her and my neighbor got it together and, you know, did this whole thing. And I was like, I want to be Dr. Fate because he was like my favorite character at the time other than like Wildcat. And she's like, who the hell is that? They had no idea what it was. But they did try to make me a, a sort of Dr. Fate costume. So I actually have a picture that's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's really it's really nice that he, he got a significant part like that. It's really nice that he's like the leader of the Justice Society. Mm -hmm. There's a Hawkman in it. I'm like, hey, wait a minute. This is supposed to be Black Am. I had no idea Hawkman has such a prevalent role. So it looks really interesting. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that was a digression. Right there. Sorry. <laughs> we'll have a lot of those. So, um, first film, more or less his first major film, was 1964, the aforementioned A Fistful of Dollars. Mm. Groundbreaking if somewhat stilted and off-surpassed early spaghetti western from Sergio Leone. Clint made his name on a pair of films that ironically featured the former TV western sidekick and science fiction bit player as a leading character literally without accredited name. Using elements of the Chambara film, Japanese samurai films which center on wandering amoral ronin who lend their services to whomever catches their interest, Johnny for cash is a mercenary, but just as often to defend the helpless and the put upon from their rich and powerful oppressors. We only almost single-handedly managed to shift the primarily American self-glorifying moral rigidity and stiltedness of the Western genre to a darker, more worldly-wise vision that more closely apprehends the reality. Everyone is filthy, both physically and metaphorically. Everyone's a backstabber, a potential enemy whose only real interests are purely selfish, greed, lust for power, even sex. He also started, or at least popularized, a new trend for filming in Spanish desert locations, and some sets erected were used over and over throughout the decade or two run of spaghetti and paella westerns. Mm. It's likely even a few German westerns were filming the same sets and locales, standing in for Mexico in the old west and hundreds of celluloid epics, often featuring at least a cameo from our man Klaus Kinski, who we devoted a show to. Some of the night scenes in The One Baddies Camp will really stay with you, and it's an easy acknowledgement that Leone is primarily a visual filmmaker. It's all about Nye Antonioni use of aesthetics and wide open spaces, with minimal attention to dialogue or anything more than a Fellini-esque attention to character. People don't matter in a Leone film, just the visuals and the convolutions of plot. In terms of script and characterizations, he's a decided minimalist, and this would carry throughout his rather short filmography. With one early peplet aside, all he did were three Eastwood films, Once Upon a Time in the West, and the rather compromised Duck You Sucker. As such, Eastwood doesn't get all that much to do. He's a dominant presence, all right, but little more than a cipher setting two sides of oppressor of a small Mexican village against each other to free it, 
But again, it was really all about the money. What's your take? Yeah, it's an interesting film. It's, you know, they started doing uh, the Westerns were, you know, this is around the time period. Okay, I'm trying to decipher all this. So the Edgar Wallace films from Germany were making headways into Italy. So mystery films from Germany were kind of filling the box office post-war Italy. And the uh, sword and sandal thing was was the thing that started with the uh, the Hercules from um, who was the producer? The guy with all the money was it, it wasn't Carlo Ponte, maybe it was. Oh, Dino De Laurentiis or somebody like that. He did the first two Steve Reeves Hercules films, and then they started making sword and sandal films, and then they started with these westerns. Theoretically. American Westerns on TV were quite popular. They even imported them overseas. This I know. And so they may have even compartmentalized them, you know, put three or four of them together to make a feature. You know, some of these are only half an hour long, so it's possible. Like they did with The Man from Uncle, remember? Some of them are black and white. So Leone made this movie. And yes, you, you really touched upon some very interesting things. Sometimes it's not about the story or the roles or the actors or the characters so much as it is about the overall landscape. Of yeah, the mise-en-scene. That's his big thing. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's totally like a painting. Mm-hmm. I mean, the guy was so good. I mean, you, know, you didn't mention Once Upon a Time in America, which was his last film, which is a little problematic, but, yeah. you know, it's... That's why I didn't mention it. <laughs> oh, okay. But... So anyway, supposedly... I saw you, Jimbo, many times by Akira Kurosawa. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it's similar, but, you know, all of it, you can't have that many similar or dissimilar stories. Yes. Uh, it just happens. But it's quite possible that Leone really liked you, Jimbo, and co-opted it. And Remember, they said the same thing about the Magnificent Seven, and uh, which one was that? It was another Kurosawa Western with uh, Western. <laughs> Seven Samurai. Seven Samurai, there we go. Yeah, but, you know, after a while, it becomes overkill. You know, The Last Starfighter, what a very quite nice film I like. You, know? you can always be reductive. Oh, this reminds me of Star Wars. Oh, this reminds me of Jaws. This reminds me of a shaman. Yeah, whatever. Uh, that really good Star Wars entry, uh, what was it called? The Rogue something? Um... Oh, yeah, was it uh, Rogue One? Is that it? Yeah, Rogue One. That's a terrific Star Wars Was entry. that the one they were making a big stink about the one pilot being black? I remember that was a huge issue. I'm like, really? <laughs> don't remember. Fucking Star Wars fans. That's why I've always been a Star Trek fan. You saw fan. that one, though. You saw yeah, sure I did. I thought it was good. It was good, yeah. And that's, you know, all, yeah, influenced by, you know, hey, here's the thing. You and I discuss movies and genres and directors and actors mm-hmm. and actresses and all kinds of shit over the years. And it's just no way around it that something is going to get in the back of your head and if you're a writer or a director and you're, you know, these things are called influences. Or a musician. I mean, if you're not doing a wholesale ripoff like George Harrison did with My Sweet Lord, you know, who cares? Everybody's going to have their influences and everybody's going to pull, like, riffs that you but recognize. George, and... Yeah, but even George didn't realize, yeah. you know, you know, it's, it's crazy Phil Spector right now. <laughs> who, who produced this fucking album, which That's is the weird. Best part. <laughs> he produced that record. And, and then, then like, him. a year later, <laughs> I'm going to sue what a you. Prick. And I, oh, he, he, like, he, being really successful. he killed Lana Clarkson in a fucking gun lunatic. He, that guy was a piece of work. <laughs> uh, anyway, so, <clears throat> interesting movie. Uh, Gian Maria Volante. 
Yes. Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion. I love yes, that movie. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah, he's terrific in that. And, you know, he's, he's the villain in this. And he's a very interesting actor with a lot of intensity. Kind of like a, a Sicilian, like a dark, handsome guy. But alternately, he can reveal malevolence and hate as well as... He is really, he's very expressive in his face. He was really well cast. Was he Sicilian? Was he uh, Sardinian or Calabrese? Something in that area. Tunisia, even? Something in that area. He's very dark, dark skin. You know, it's like people came from that part of the country where the sun blasted people, and they, they were traditionally darker Italians. Like, for example, unrelated, my wife had seen some very rare pictures I had of my father, where she said, I thought your father was black. You know, I wanted to tell you that. I was just going to say about the dark uh, Sicilians. My great uncle, the guy that I was actually named after, my great grandfather always held it against my great grandmother because she was positive that she had an affair with a black man. He wasn't, mm. you know, he was Italian, but probably a genetic, I don't want to say throwback, but you know, when you get a redhead or something like that and none of you are redheads, yeah. but they had somebody in your family line that was, same idea. But yeah, that was always an issue apparently in the family because they was like, yeah, that's not my son, it can't be. You know, sure it was, <laughs> asshole. But yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, no. So people from that part of the, the world where the equator is blasting through, mm-hmm. you know, well. Uh, he actually looked Humphrey Bogart, which is funny, but so I don't know why they thought he was black. <laughs> so next, we're going to for a few dollars yes, more. Yes, so for a few dollars more. A dramatically superior film followed for a few dollars more. All the tropes of the spaghetti and paella western having been established by the last film, Leone expands the palette, bringing an Italian western anti-hero standby, Lee Van Cleef, of the first two Sabata films, Blood Money, The Grand Duel, The Octagon, Escape from New York, and TV's The Master, the last few of which were discussed in our Chuck Norris and John Carpenter shows, as well as ridiculously ubiquitous spaghetti western baddie Klaus Kinski, who wonderfully got to play an anti-hero in one of my all-time favorite of the genre and God Said the King, and establishing an uneasy partnership come rivalry between the more experienced Van Cleef and the young loner Eastwood. To say this one was a huge step up from Fistful is the understatement of the century. I love this film and have since my spaghetti western loving father exposed me to it on a Saturday afternoon TV. And scenes from It, The Stranger's Gun Down, aka Django the Bastard, and God Said the King are what I immediately flash out when somebody says spaghetti western. John Maria Volante of Bullet for the General, Melville's Le Cercle Rouge, and the fantastic Poliziotteschi Giallo investigation of Citizen Above Suspicion that I mentioned earlier, is back as once again a baddie, following his similar role in the prior Fistful of Dollars, and both Eastwood and Van Cleef are in town as rival bounty hunters trying to take down the sicko, robber, and home invasion-style rapist and mass murderer El Indio, who plays. Klaus Kinski is on hand in a minor but, as always, quite memorable part as one of his henchmen and an equally psychotic hunchback to boot. Uh, the plot borrows a lot from the prior film in the sense that Eastwood winds up cozying up to the baddies, here infiltrating Indio's gang only to kill off his new partners under a robbery attempt, and then things really get convoluted. It turns out Indio's playing the two bounty hunters all along to get what he wants and kill off his own gang so he doesn't have to split the money. In the meantime, Kinski and Van Cleef have a big face-off, as do the latter and Indio, before another big secret is revealed. The only real hero of the film wanders off into the sunset. Eastwood gets the bounty, roll credits. Damn, if Fistful kicked off some major changes to the Western genre, this one both started the craze and remains one of its handful of apotheoses. The visuals are moody, almost horror film-worthy, and scenes from this will haunt you like a waking dream long after a viewing. 
Morricone's soundtrack is sparse, but again, superior to the more formative one that he gave to Fistful, with a far more haunting quality and use of then quite unusual male and female vocalizations, as well as his setting the standard for overuse of whistling in the genre, unfortunately. <laughs> it's a damn good film and by far the best of Leone's efforts, only visually rivaled by his later Once Upon a Time in the West, though that film comes off as far less powerful and comparatively concise than this, Leone having since settled into his own fatal flaw of excess, first displayed in the highly overrated film that would follow this in the Eastwood Leone collaborations. No, I quite like it. I can't add to more than you said. I, I agree with you on nearly all your points, except for one, your, your reference to the next movie, which I love. Oh, so many people do. Yeah, it's long. <laughs> <laughs> it's very long. Yes, so that's it. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, no, no, I agree with what you said about the previous movie. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, 1966, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And right after his biggest success, Leone drops the ball. While still working the off-stunning visuals, sparse dialogue, and similarly-minded, if far less spectacular, even occasionally absurdist, any Morricone soundtrack, even casting both Eastwood and Van Cleef once again as rival bounty hunters, this one falls flat. Partly due to its ridiculously extended running time, partly due to its lack of horror-worthy evening settings, and very much due to Eli Wallace's comparatively hammy take on a Mexican bandito who gets way too much of the screen time herein. Like the subsequent Duck You Sucker, Wallach lends a weird comedy and cheesiness to the proceedings, which combined with its fidget-baiting length, doofy score, listen to that one theme, it's like someone told a dad joke in a kid's show, <laughs> and night on the present sunny desert visuals, leaves this one very much in the dust of the two films that preceded it, and the Bronson Claudia Cardinale Henry Fonda starring epic that would follow, which we spoke to in our Charles Bronson show. First off, the title is complete bullshit. Like a true spaghetti western, Policio Teshi or Giallo, no one is even remotely good here. They're all mercenaries and villains. Secondly, while Tuco may in fact be bad, I'd more accurately have called him goofy if not hammy. The character is ridiculous, particularly coming after the terse rival straggling families of Fistful and the disturbingly twisted Indio and Wild of Volante and Kinski, just one film prior. And we'd spoken to that film previously in our Klaus Kinski show as well. Wallach is comparatively ridiculous, at the very least coming off as harmless, like an old American Western sidekick a la Gabby Hayes or Andy Devine, the sort of character filmmakers include as comic relief and identification for little kids in the audience. And is Lee Van Cleef really ugly by anyone's standards, especially compared to the actors of today's cinema and television? Fuck, he's practically hot stuff compared to the vast majority of those weird-looking clowns. So as stated earlier, the title is a complete load of horse shit. There's nobody good in it, there's nobody really bad in it, and there's nobody ugly in it. And then the plot, which sort of recycles that of the two films prior, but makes it silly, sunny, and with length and focus on Tuco, downright boring by comparison. Eastwood and former Army officer Van Cleef are once again cast as rival bounty hunters. The big difference is this time, Van Cleef is ruthless, killing both his target and employer when he learns of a stolen shipment of gold and the alias that the thief had adopted. In the meantime, Eastwood bags Wallach's doofy Tuco, only to shoot him down from his intended hanging and split the bounty with him, which then becomes their hustle. Tired of the obnoxious whiny Wallach at one point, Eastwood ditches him in the middle of the desert. This pisses Wallach off, and he returns the favor, resulting in some nasty sunstroke and worse for Eastwood, who he further pisses on by making him drink water from his smelly boot. Fortuitously, Van Cleef's target winds up running across Wallach and tells him where the gold is buried, Django-like it's in a local cemetery. Pulling a fast one to get Eastwood into a local monastery to recover from what he just did to him so that he can help him get the gold, events land them both in the very prison camp Van Cleef is working undercover in. 
being a fucking moron, Wallet closes a Van Cleef's now deceased target and winds up tortured and consigned the lead Van Cleef to the stolen gold. Eastwood shows up and it winds up with a three-way gunfight and a similar ending to the mildly homoerotic bromance slash rivalry <laughs> between Wallach and himself. Roll credits. <laughs> As you can tell, even from the plot, Leone was clearly looking for a cheap laugh this time around. Eschewing the amplified realism of Fistful and the dark, gripping, genre-defining business of a few dollars more, isn't this one for shits and giggles, trying to elicit some of that broad, knife Franco and Chichio style Italian comedy within the vague confines of the spaghetti western genre he just effectively popularized, if not created, with his earlier pair of films. It's still saved somewhat by the strong aesthetics of the director and the dependable casting of Eastwood and the far too short shrifted Van Cleef, who effectively cameos in this endless three-hour endurance test. But all of his penchant for Fellini-esque minor role casting, the happy-happy exclusively bright daylight scenes throughout, and Wallach's absurd comedic Tuco relegate this one to an also-ran, a misguided attempt to continue or close out a series that really should have stopped with the prior film. That one is a classic. This one barely qualifies. Honestly, if it didn't come as part of an effective Blu-ray box set, I'd never have had this one to the collection. I never liked it. I disagree with you, sir. <laughs> Witness for the prosecution. Here you go. Actually, you'll be the defense. Witness for the defense. Yeah, yeah. I represent Donald Trump. <laughs> my, my, my client is a fucking pig bastard. <laughs> anyway, so... Okay, Judge Cannon, or whatever the fuck her name was. <laughs> people are going to hang up right there. I don't want to listen to any more of this. Don't say anything anyway. bad about Judge Cannon. <laughs> or Big Bassett. So, uh, no, I disagree with you. I, I, I love this one. You're a Jew, frankly. You're a Jew, Italian Westerns. I hold very highly in high regard, and uh, this is one of them. The other one is also by Leone, and that's the picture he did after this. But anyway, well, I like that one as well. I, I get what you're saying in some points. There's nobody good, there's nobody bad, there's nobody ugly in this. Everybody's in shades of gray. Yes. And you're right in a couple of points. You know, it's overlong. <laughs> well, no, 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 not so much that. It's an epic film. You know, it, it's. Some of the points I'm, I'm alluding to are, you think Clint's a hero, but it's not. You know, he's, he he teams up with Tuco, which is Eli Wallach's character. They do the scam, going into town, and Tuco gets caught, and, you know, jailed, caught, and hanged. And Clint shoots him down, and he's getting tired of shit. So he's like, I'll let him hang for a little while longer. <laughs> you know, and then, you know, they run afoul of each other. But there's some good stuff in this movie. I mean, like when Tuco goes into the, the town with the, all the uh, the tumbleweeds and, you know, there's not much going on there. And he goes, oh, it's, like, it's always those Leone aesthetics. You're, you're yeah, never going to lose that. He walks in there and, and you know, this is old doddering guy in the gunsmith local general store. And he's like, I want the gun. <laughs> and he takes all these fucking guns. Which are probably fine weapons back in the day. And he takes them apart, which shows his technical skills. Even though he looks like a complete bombastic nut job, he reassembles his own gun. And you know the little touches like that I really like. I love the whole two hours later <laughs> when when these two guys finally decide, okay, you know, I forgive you for starving me in the desert and give me sun blistered blood lips. Oh, it's horrible, yeah. Starving me, that's a pretty raw scene. It was. Too. Mm-hmm. They join up with the. Uh, you think they ripped it off for Django? Possibly. Yeah. They, they end up joining the, the Union Army, who is, you know, getting slaughtered by the 
the Confederates by uh, a bridge. And um, this is like, okay, these two guys got iffy allegiances to anyone, including each other. Are like, okay, we're going to do this. Now, I love that scene. Who was that that played that guy? He was really, really good. He played the uh, the captain of the Union Army and just wonderful. Now, he's dying as he hears them blowing up the bridge. I like little things like that, little scenes like that. Lee Van Cleef, I don't know, because always liked that guy, always liked that guy. And, you know, in the previous film, another shade, you know, all of Leone's films, shades are great. I think that's the thing that attracts him to these pictures and attracts him to making them, that his lead characters have so much shades of gray, but a little bit more on the darker side. And then the way he beats a shot, Toko, in the, the prison camp, which is, in a way, as Leone shot it, to me, near to a Holocaust camp. What well, you know, the way these guys are in prison. I can hear that. You know, forced to play this folky Marconi tune, which is very solemn and very sad to hear. And he's just beating the shit out of people inside his room. But he's doing it with a purpose because he wants to know the location of the goal. Yeah, you know, the final hour where they're in a town besieged by both forces fighting each other and you know they're both bombing this town and then they end up in the cemetery and who hasn't used the name arch stanton when they're meeting a girl uh what's your name arch stanton really is that short for archibald yeah my name is arch stanton seriously oh. <laughs> i actually use that shh your name is really Art Stanton? No, I lied. It's Steve McGillicuddy, but I use Art Stanton sometimes. <laughs> so uh, anyway, no, I, I like that. I, I don't know. I like this film a lot. I think his next picture is a masterpiece. Oh, yeah. Like, well, but, masterpiece, I don't know, but it's a really nice film, yes. But but no, I, I like the hell out of this. But Clint took what he learned here and moved on. Yes. Still in Italy, 1967, The Witches. At the tail end of the 60s, there was a thing for art house anthology films. I mean, sure, you had sex comedies and horror films that were comprised of a trilogy or quartet of short pieces revolving around a given theme or actress playing multiple roles, from Fulci's Imaniaki with Barbara Steele, and we've done shows on both Fulci and Barbara Steele, to Bava's Four Times That Night with Daniela Giordani and Black Sabbath, and we did a Bava show, the multi-director Spirits of the Dead, discussed in both our Bridget Bordeaux and Peter Fonda shows, the Women, also from our Bardot show. Sex with a Smile with Barbara Boucher and Edward Fennec. Hell, even Casino Royale, really. And we talked that one on our trio of James Bond shows. It was a thing for a few years there. Like Imaniaki, The Women, and Four Times That Night, Istrega is a showpiece for Silvana Magnano, who would go on to the odd Lucino Visconti film conversation piece, as well as his Death in Venice and Pierpaolo Pasolini's Teorema. She plays five different women under five different directors. The first one is Visconti's tale of a famous and somewhat diva-esque actress, known mainly for her looks, who's invited to spend the evening with friends, quote-unquote, who proceed to get her loaded and wipe off all her makeup to show that she's nothing special after all. I'd suggest making new friends, lady. What a bunch of pricks. She also wants time off from making films and appearances to have a kid, though in the end the paparazzi arrive, the crew makes her up, and they march her out like a zombie to continue her career and presumably give up on her dreams of having any sort of personal life. Then a comparative unknown, a moral Bolognoni, gives us the sarcastically named Civic Duty, wherein Magnano picks up a guy who'd just been hit by a car to take him to the hospital. But she apparently really just did it to get to rush hour traffic faster and dumps him off when she makes out to the open road to die. And the 
this is supposed to be a sarcastic comedy. Mm-hmm. Mm. Pasolini, most infamous for his unwatchable Sodgun Nazi adaptation, Solo, true to form, drops the most unwatchable piece of shit in the otherwise quite watchable film featuring the unfunny sub-cantinflous Pierino without the last baggy pants comic Toto in what appears to have been, quite thankfully, his final role. The odd-looking fuck takes on dual roles as father and son, the former in a Harple Marx-going bald fright wig, the latter in a drag queen-worthy fake pompadour, continually mugging at each other and trading off close-up one-shots interminably. Apparently, the father's wife died, so he's looking for a new one. The fact that he says he's a handsome guy is supposed to elicit gills of laughter from the audience. He finds a deaf girl, why she's got to be deaf, who the hell knows, and marries her, then scams her into pretend suicide so that they can afford a better house, even though real insurance companies don't pay on suicides. Of course, she actually dies, literally slipping on a banana peel, and he buries her next to his dead wife. Um, ha-ha? One Franco Rossi, only really notable for directing the miniseries Quo Vadis with Max Monsedo in the mid-80s, gives us a far more palatable and very short vignette whose humor could have only landed in Sicily. A peasant woman tells her husband that some guy made a pass at her, so he loads up the bandoleros, goes out hitman style, and picks off the guy's entire family. Cue funeral scene, end of peace. Well, there's a whole lot more watchable and amusing than the Pasolini Toto bit. <laughs> Finally, neo-realist standby Victoria De Sica, most memorably of The Damned, where a family of rich decadent arms dealer industrialists finds itself doomed by a business relationship with the incipient Nazi party, and it's practically Buñuel gone cabaret. I do like that film. It gives us the other linchpin of the film, where a young Clint Eastwood is an American who's apparently obsessed with westerns, which is the inside joke referencing his work with Leone and prior American career, with a drab, old-fashioned secretary-looking Italian wife. She has daydreams of being a glamorous movie star type, with Eastwood handing her roses and jumping into a big fancy bed with her, but laments their all-too-typical, lame and passionless marriage, grousing about proto-feminism, all oh, we are slaves to men, our society is just one big harem, and America while sweeping up and cooking for the bored Eastwood. But most of the fun here is in her wacky, fumetti-style daydreams and kinky costumes, like her ostensible sci-fi dominatrix outfit, accompanied by Batman-like sound effects. Towards the end, she even perks up and starts to look somewhat Tina Fey-esque before daydreaming herself into a sub-Lodolce Vita meets Sophia Loren smoker scenario. Pointless slice-of-life-gone 60s day-glow a la The Frightened Woman, Baba Yaga, or The Tenth Victim, at least in her increasingly fantastic and ever more sumptuous daydream sequences. It's a Dino De Laurentiis production, and the soundtrack comes courtesy of Piero Piccioni, who scores such films as The Tenth Victim with Ursula Andress, except for the Pasolini segment, which is another Morricone score. In all, it's a light and fluffy supposed comedy that leans more art house than typical for the type, but all you really want to see out of this are the Visconti and De Sica parts. Forget the others. Yeah, it's it's a very odd mix. For a long time, people wanted to see it. Then it finally became available, and then less people wanted to see it. <laughs> uh, I actually bought the last story with these. It was, was one of the better ones. It kind of like rolled better. You know, it's it's the secret. Which is interesting. You know, Clarice was working on Victoria the Secret. Isn't it interesting? Yeah, that Savannah McGonnell is it pretty much every one of these things is, is one thing. Um, it showed her range. I mean, she was very, very highly regarded. Was she in June? Did David Lynch June? I think so. I think she was like, uh, if you want an example, she's like the Jean Moreau, like in France. Yeah. Because she was more regarded as an actress right. than a looker, because she's kind of average looking. Mm. She's not like a Bardot or a Sophia Loren well, or no, even a little Bridget. Yeah, it's just... yeah, more regarded as an actress. So it's really interesting to see Clint. Yeah, it's a, it's a thing. It's a, it's a jokey y'all. He's playing a guy who likes Westerns, you know, because it's a Clint Eastwood now. I like that they tried to 
And again, it's one of I think the to me the best episode is because they try to femme him out a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they try to make him like subservient to her. You know, because she's taking uh, all the the high points, so to say, this relationship. And um, it's probably for there's got wrong. It's probably. <laughs> Perfect film for this to go off on, yes. You never know what's going to happen in the world, man. Never know. (laughs) If you see fucking Godzilla out the window, run. That's it. It's like Maitland McDonough said in uh, Broken Mirrors, Broken Minds, the Argento book, which I always quote this one too, or paraphrase it, that, you know, the guy's walking down the street and everything's fine, and then all of a sudden a girder falls off. You know, those construction you always have in New York over your head? And just misses hitting him, and it would, clearly would have killed him. And all of a sudden, he realizes that the whole world's made of glass, not stone. That, you know, it, anything could happen at any time. Any kind of chaotic incident could impact you and fuck up your entire life or change everything just in one second. And you never know if that's going to happen or when. And obviously, that's like... It, uh, it's almost like a zen moment, but like a horrifying one. It's an existential crisis point. And it's very true. It's <laughs> you know, very life true. Life is like that. That's why whenever I'm walking around in New York City, which I occasionally have to go to work in. Uh, oh, I hate going under those things where they got the construction over your head. I'm like, oh, jeez. Oh, they're everywhere. No, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. even going to the laundry, I'm pushing a cart. Yes, because I don't have to take, you know. No, I go to a physical laundromat. It's okay. I go like 7 o'clock in the morning. Very few people there, but there's some people. And today, this fucking guy, I'm one of these, he's, you're, you're too old or you're too fat to be in a fucking scooter, buddy, <laughs> comes up behind me silently and nearly broadsides me and I gave him a look. And he looked back. I'm like, fuck. But it's 7 o'clock in the morning. What are you racing on the scooter? And what are you doing on the sidewalk? You idiot. Yeah. So, exactly. Yeah, yeah anything can happen anytime, anywhere. So, back to this. Zing! Back to this. <laughs> Uh, I, I quite like it. It's nice to see Clint Eastwood do something a little different, and it's nice to possibly see him do something a little fucking fun of himself. Yeah. It's one of the two reasons to see this one, the two segments that work, the first one and yes. this one, which I believe is the last. I agree. So. Not the Pasolini one. No, God, not the Pasolini one. <laughs> they should have excised that and burned it, like most Pasolini works. Uh, in 1968, Where Eagles Dare. Directed by Brian Horton, who gave us Kelly's Heroes the following year, this is Alistair MacLean heist war film. Features Richard Burton, Clint Eastwood, Ferdie Main of the Vampire Happening and Fearless Vampire Killers, which we discussed in our Roman Polanski show, Ingrid Pitt of the Vampire Lovers, Countess Dracula and the House That Drip Blood, discussed in our Hammer and Amica shows, Patrick Weimark of the Skull, Witchfighter General, Blood on Satan's Claw, and Repulsion from our Amicus and Polanski shows. Anton Differing of the German Emanuel knockoff Vanessa, which I think we discussed in our Emanuel show. Jeff Franco's Nunsploitation Love Letters of a Portuguese Nun, Shatter, Circus of Horrors, and Fahrenheit 451 from our Sci-Fi in the 70s, Emanuel films, and Trilogy of Jeff Franco shows, respectively. Yeah. And Darren Nesbitt, the Colin Baker lookalike of the earlier special branch and guest spots in nearly every ITV show of the late 60s and 70s, many of which we had discussed in several shows we did on British cult television, inclusive of The Avengers, Stranger Port, Man of the World, Sentimental Agent, The Protectors, The Persuaders, Danger Man, The Saint, Man in the Suitcase, even Doctor Who. Essentially, Burton and Eastwood and a few others are sent into the German Alps to extract a U.S. general captured by the Nazis before they can grill military strategy and secrets out of him. Apparently, Trump didn't betray him to 
our enemies for cash. <laughs> With his stolen uh, spy documents. Fuck. Treason, treason. The problem is the schloss they're using is inaccessible except by ski lift. They dress up as German soldiers, but are quickly sniffed out. And after a convoluted escape plan, there's a tense moment when one is revealed as a Nazi spy, who then turns out to be a double agent working for the Allies. More terse escapes and turnings of the table ensue, until it's revealed that the entire mission was one big setup to expose a suspected mole in British intelligence. Alistair McLean wrote some really complicated and often quite thrilling spy novels, several of which were adapted into some rather engaging pictures. Puppet on the Chain is probably the best of them, mm. but there were many others, like Caravan to Vicaris from our Charlotte Rampling show, The Satan Bug, The Anthony Hopkins Went Eight Bills Toll, mm. and Breakheart Pass from our Charles Branson show. It's obvious from the first few twists and turns of the script here that he was sourced for the film, and while I'm not always a big fan of war films, there are a few I really enjoy, generally hailing from Italy, like the Dario Argento scripted Probability Zero, Klaus Kinski's Salt in the Wound, and Five for Hell, which we talked in the Kinski show, Horton's other big film, Kelly's Heroes, and this one. I used to have a VHS recording from this off of broadcast TV that was even better because apparently the reception must have sucked. It must have been during you know bad weather or something. So the snowy atmosphere of the film was enhanced by this visual snow of an overused blank date. So it looked like it was snowing throughout the whole movie. I really loved that. And I actually kind of miss it even watching it now. I'm like, geez, I wish I still had that thing. <laughs> so what's your take? I love this movie. This oh, yeah, it's a good one. I do. I love this movie. You know, it's, it's, um, there's admittedly... A few films, every few years, I will revisit, and, yeah, the fuckers along. You know, I, it's, it, you know, if anybody sees my post on Facebook and I'm bitching about long movies, if I'm bitching about a movie and I say it's length, not that kind of length, if I say it's length and I mention it's length and I say, you know, oh, it's so long, not that kind of long. If I, if I mention stuff like that, it's because I'm trying to say, in other words, this story could have been told in a, in a shorter running time. But some movies, like this one, and, you know, uh, The Great Escape, The Magnificent Seven, those are linchpins for me. Those those are films I, I truly adore as a kid. I will watch, rewatch them every so often. I like this one a lot because, I hate to coin a phrase, firing on all cylinders, Eastwood, it's coming out of the Sergio Leone phase that, that, you know, he was doing TV, he was doing bit parts, then TV series that ran for about five years, 1596.5, worked with Leone through two fine films and one really big film, regardless of how anyone thinks about it. That was, you know, it's a three-hour-plus epic. And he came back to America. He did he did a couple of pictures, uh, uh, you know, uh, Hang Em High and uh, Coogan's Bluff. They're interesting movies. He's, he's adjusting to be, that bringing that persona to cop movies, let's say. And then he does this thing, this, this World War II throwback, this Alistair McLean. I love this picture because I, I always liked Burton on and off. Yeah, he had issues as a person. We're going to be showing him soon. Yeah, yeah, we'll be doing a show on him soon. But there are sometimes I'm mildly impressed. He can rein it in. Yeah, and here's the thing with Burton. He was he was a stage actor, stage performer. I'm not talking about method or stuff like that that they did in New York with Lee Strasberg, you know, De Niro, Pacino, Shelton from the Raptors. You know, <laughs> his thing was they had no mics, so you had to really project. He comes from that school, and so 
kind of like uh, Richard Harris, who we did a show on last time. Yeah, like Richard Harris, like Anthony Hopkins has a very, you know, and, and Burton and, and Hopkins are both Welsh, both from Wales. And, and when he wasn't sloused, which was a <laughs> damn shame. And he did some fine performances drunk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or or yeah, he, he did. You might be able to say um, the same about Harris. <laughs> yes, you might be able to and say Oliver Reed, about Harris. and Oliver who Reed, we did a yes, show on. <laughs> who we did a show on. Yeah. But I truly, I truly love Burton. Um, but to see him do something, you know, it's the whole fun of it was you got Clint Eastwood, so you got the testosterone shit going on with Clint Eastwood. You know, he's spaghetti western. I was doing the war shit. Okay, all right, he's doing army stuff, and then Burton. He really, he did a, a couple of films, uh, Radon Rommel, or, you know, something like that, you know, about the, the journey, you know, he didn't delve too much into that action genre beforehand, before this, occasionally. But this kind of was a linchpin. Mary Ure was married to Robert Shaw, which is interesting. Why wasn't Robert Shaw in this picture? It would have been too much, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but good cast. I'm glad you mentioned Darren Nesbitt. Mm-hmm. A really overlooked supporting actor. Nobody ever talks about him, and I think he's rather good. He's rather good, and he's fucking excellent as this this German guy who's kind of running the show there in the Schloss Kessel. And you know, he's like he likes he likes Mary Yar, you know, he likes Ingrid, you know, who doesn't like those two. <laughs> and but he shows also that he's smarter than he's he's coming off. Yeah, which is like, oh, a lot of interesting stuff going on there. Yes, there's a lot of allegiances and false allegiances, but I think some of the action is terrific. I mean, got to be sound stages, but like when they try to get from where they are to the castle. Oh, when they have to blow up their car when they're pretending to be the uh, the Nazi officers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's pretty spectacular stuff. There's in some good stuff in there. Mm-hmm. And and then okay, so we got all that. And then they gotta get the fuck out of the castle. Yep. I mean, this is this is prime. And I always had the impression from the scene when they were trying to get out that it was up on top of a mountain, like as in a cliff, you know, so like yeah. in the snow. Yeah. I'm like, what the hell? How are they supposed to do this? It is really gripping stuff. It's gripping stuff. I mean, yeah. I, and, and the finale is we gotta get the fuck out. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and you're in a castle on top of a mountain, surrounded by hostile Nazis. <laughs> Not only that, it's an army. It looks like more and more keep coming. Well, you know, it's, they got a secret guy there. Right. More and more keep coming in. And not only they got to get back down, they have to get the hell out yep. <laughs> of that part of Germany. You know, it's, it's really well done. Way, way, way overlooked. Kelly's Heroes, uh, which I'm sure we're going to cover, yep. is, is, is a fun, entertaining film with a bit of self-mockery. It's got a lot of fun stuff in it. But this is like, a way overlooked action movie from this time period with some some great actors still you know Patrick Weimark, Michael Horder, you know Donald Houston, and it's nice to see Ingrid Pitt Prehammer doing something where she's emphasizing her huge bosom. Uh, you know it's it's quite nice. Uh, Anton Differing you mentioned Vincent Ball from Blood of the Vampires in this area. Uh, lots of really recognizable. I always love this picture. And you know what? If you've not seen this film, if you listen to this podcast and you say, oh, I don't know about this. No, I, I really think you would enjoy this movie. Seriously. Yeah, you know what it is? 
it's less a war film and more a action spy film. It's a McLean. Yeah. If you've seen Alistair McLean, you kind of know what to expect. And it's always half action adventure and half really intrigue-laden spy stuff. So uh, I do really enjoy most of the films I've seen from him that came from his pen. Yeah, 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 adventure. Yeah, high adventure. It's uh, like, what was that line from from Conan? Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. <laughs> Chris McCall. Yes. So, uh, no, this is, this is a good one. Highly recommend. I think pretty much for both of us. Mm-hmm. So next, 1970, Kelly's Heroes. And now we come to my all-time favorite war film, once again by Where Eagles Dares, Robert Horton. And it's actually a rather countercultural take on an ostensible war film. Already disgraced and stripped of his rank due to being made the goat for a botched military operation, Clint is the head of an infantry unit who learns of a stash of Nazi gold just inside enemy lines. He gathers a motley crew of sleazy gamblers, numbers runners, stoners, and grifters among the unit to work a special operation to grab the money for themselves, fuck orders, fuck the war. Along the way... Archie Bunker himself, Carol O'Connor intrudes, thinking that he's going to grab the glory by taking charge of this mysterious charge on enemy lines that nobody knew about, and our heroes find themselves captured by the German army. But they cut a 50-50 split deal, and both Clint's crew and the lucky Germans head off into the sunset with their newfound gains, while O'Connor, still none the wiser, is held up by a crowd of French locals who think he's Charles de Gaulle, here to liberate them from Vichy occupation. It's got a great and rather unusual cast, including Kojak, Horror Express, and Lisa and the Devil's Telly Savalas from our Spanish horror and Mario Bob shows, the always hilarious master of snark Don Rickles, the love boats Gavin McLeod, and Donald Sutherland who we did an entire show on. Far from a usual war film, this one's more of a Vietnam era middle finger to authority in general an ode to the anti-hero that surpasses the likes of MASH, the movie, also with Sutherland and frequent co-star Elliot Gould both of whom we did shows on. I always loved this one and I still do. For years it was the only war film I could even sit through because it's exactly the opposite of what you think one of these should be expressing. I, I always thought it was... Uh strange to me that that Clint would do, because I always thought even back then, that he was kind of, you know, aligned to the right, Yes. I should say. And And what's uh, he doing in this, in this role? (laughs) Yeah, what is he doing in this, in this role? You know, I don't know, maybe sometimes, maybe we misunderstood what he's trying to do. Maybe I'm not saying anything, but maybe Clint Eastwood's trying to be subversive by being immersed in a group he's really not believing in. Maybe he was just screwing the right girl at that time. You know, some hippie chick, and you're like, oh, man, let's turn you on to this, and there you go. And then he loses it later on when he's not involved with her anymore. (laughs) I wouldn't go there, but you might be right. Clever you. (laughs) Uh, It was actually Brian G. Hutton who directed this and the previous film we just discussed. And, yeah, it's interesting. It's, 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 wow. It's like those... uh, Sutherland Gould movies that they did together, like Spies yes. and, and, and uh, a couple of other pictures of the late 60s, early 70s. We talked uh, about them in both of their shows. We did a show on we Gould talked and about them. one. Yeah, yeah. They're, 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 they're very, it's a bit long-ish, but you know what? It's it's a lot of fun. Telly Savalas is, is so much fun at this. Yeah. When Telly is not, it, it was almost like, I hate to say it, it's almost like nobody's reined in on this picture. Some great outtakes yeah. I've seen on YouTube uh, over the years where, like, people just doing shit, like uh, Donald Sutherland, Don Rickles, Carol O'Connor, Telly. It's like this, this, and none of the special features on any of these films, unless they do uh, a new 4K, who knows what's around, version of this uh, for release. It looked to me from what I've seen that, like, a lot of people just riffing. Mm-hmm. Like, here's your script, riff on it, you know? Yep. Uh, uh, really, 
It's a lot of fun. It's uh, you pretty much described the plot. Who was the guy that played? I always thought of him like a gay Mullen Brando. He was a German guy. Remember the guy that yes. talked? The one that cut the deal with him? The one that cut the deal yeah. with him. And I was like, wow, you look like a Femi Brando. <laughs> and, and yeah, who the hell was that actor? Can't match his name up with who he played. I haven't seen him in a little bit. But anyway, Stu Margolin, you know, famous for, uh, well, infamous for the Rockford Files, was also in this. This is kind of great, fun cast. Oh, was it David Hurst? Is that the guy? I don't I don't know. He, was, he kind of looked like Brando-ish. Mm. I don't know. This is 1969-70, so I mm. don't know. So, <laughs> two odd things before we got to this. I, they, they deserve to be mentioned. Clint, in 1971, did paint your wagon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Josh I didn't cover this Logan. one at all, so go ahead. <laughs> yeah, Joshua Logan, the famous Broadway uh, producer, director, blah, blah, blah. Uh, screenplay by, are you ready? Ellen J. Lerner, you know, my fair lady, shit like that, and Patty Shayevsky. Of Network. Of, like, <laughs> yeah, of, of like uh, one of our favorite our favorite movies uh, from Ken Russell. Which uh, one are you thinking? Alter States? Alter States. Yeah, oh, I love that film, God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so and this is based on the, 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 the musical with Ellen J. Lerner and Frederick Lowe, like, my fair lady, so with Anthony, whatever the fuck. <laughs> they, they bring they bring a bunch of guys that don't sing, <laughs> and, which is Lee Marvin and Clooney. Now yep. Lee Marvin, I, I mentioned earlier, did actually do some uh, work on stage as a male chorus member. So yeah, I guess Lee could sing in in his key. Clint, I'm unaware of. <laughs> and then they brought Gene Seberg. Wasn't she like banned from like performing at some point? Yeah, she was left wing things. Yep. And that was an odd choice. So Gene Seberg is is the starlet on this picture. But they they also dragged in Hart Presnell, who was like you know a big star on the stage at this point, and uh, Ray Walston, who also did film and television. It's just a misfire all around. Yeah, it's way too long, way too long at uh, nearly three hours. It's it, it's your typical thing. It's like you got a prospector, you got a you got a younger guy, which was a prospector, is the Marvin. Uh, oh, and there were Mormons, and he had a buy Gene Seaver. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, it's very strange. And it's just like there was no auto-tune back in the time. So I'm <laughs> sure it was really hard for these guys. Yeah, I, I give them credit for, for trying to, to work hard. They probably worked really hard to just learn how to sing. Look, if Shatner, Nimoy, Bastion Cabot, and uh, Lauren Green could put out albums back then. <laughs> and Richard Harris. Richard Harris. Oh, Richard Harris, good God. We talked about him last time, yes, with MacArthur Park. Yeah, but this this is one bizarre freaking movie, which, I don't know. Another <laughs> thing he did prior to this is uh, one of his early Don Siegel pictures, Clint, is Two Mules with Sister Sarah, which uh, teamed him up with then very popular Shelley McLean. Mm-hmm. As, uh, as a nun. As a nun. <laughs> Turned out to be like this tough, I don't know, she came across as this tough, maybe bisexual, uh, military, and uh, it was shot primarily in, in, in uh, Spain, where a lot of these, these Italian westerns were. But being a Don Siegel picture has a bit of a grittiness to it, but 
A lot of people like that. I just wanted to mention that one. Yeah, it's fascinating that you mentioned that Patty Chayefsky was involved with Paint Your Wagon. I didn't know that. We talked about Alter States during our Ken Russell in the 70s and 80s show. That Alter States is still one of my favorite films ever. It's so oh, yeah. existential and metaphysical, and people don't really get it when you show it to them. I actually did it for – I ran a um, film and book class, uh, two different ones, one of my last jobs. And people were just like, I don't know if they're taking it surface level or what. I'm like, no, no, no. You have no idea this stuff's being alluded to here. It's so heady. No, people don't get it, you know, because they got, there's no action. Yes. Right. But it, they don't get what's going on in it is the bottom line. But they line. don't get what's going on. You have, and, to, you have to have a bit of an enlightened, awakened Ajna sort of a thing to really pick up everything that's going on. But you can, if you're well-read in philosophy and metaphysics and drug culture and all sorts of things like that, science, especially at that time, cutting-edge science, you'll pick up a lot of stuff. It's it's a really heady film, surprisingly heady. Yeah, yeah, surprisingly. And you know what? I, I'm going to admit, I sometimes do not always appreciate William Hurt. And I'm going to put this out there that this will make you maybe revisit other William Hurt performances. Like the one he did for Diodato? <laughs> no. Uh, come on. Oh, no, I'm trying to be serious. But no, it's it's just, he's so amazing in this. Oh, yeah. Now he was fine in that film. Yeah. Okay. So, next. Next. Play Misty for me, 1971. Clint's first film directing. This one is a proto-slasher where he's a dinner club jazz DJ at a weird California coastal radio station where his sleepy schmaltz follows a funk DJ. Uh, what was the demographic for the station again? <laughs> but the story is simple. Some crazy woman, TV drama regular Jessica Walters, really digs Clint's radio voice and stalks him into a pickup at his favorite bar attended by director Don Siegel of Dirty Harry, Escape from Alcatraz, Charlie Varick, The Black Windmill, and Telephone from our Joe Don Baker, Michael Caine, and Charlie Bronson shows, who shows up dressed like Captain Kangaroo. Unfortunately for him, she's bonkers and starts showing up at his place unannounced dropping in on him at random times and locations and demanding more and more of his time and attention, escalating to suicide attempts, wrecking his place, and kidnapping Donna Mills of no less than three episodes of Brian Clement's thriller, which we had discussed in British shows, and Knott's Landing, an ex who he'd been courting. It's appropriately grim and oddly quiet in tone, but the best part of all this is Mills' amusing gay pal named JJ. Why don't you go cruise some sailors, huh? Oh, please, don't mention seafood. Walters is shrewish and smothering, with red flags flaring from minute one. Only in the early days of free love could anyone not suss out that she's not right in the head and a must-avoid, and she's not even especially attractive to give Clinton a good excuse. I can't say I really like this film at all, but it is frustratingly disturbing, at least when Walters isn't pulling her sub-Liz Taylor by way of Biddy Davis' whiny hysterics routine, which just leaves the viewer wanting to scream back at her, SHUT UP! Well, it's a very strange movie for Clint Eastwood to pick. Yes. His, his directorial thing. But he, he was a big lover of jazz, always has been. Uh, nice to see Johnny Otis, Joe Zavinol, Cannibal Adderley appearing in footage uh, shot specifically for this film. At the Newport Jazz Festival, yeah. There were some jazz members I spotted, jazz musicians, and, and some footage, too. It's a strange, it's like a proto-slasher film in a way, a stalker, mm-hmm. proto-stalker film. And you know what's interesting about it? It's like this guy who's suddenly built his career being this, you know, like a macho guy, right? It's suddenly becoming like... Victimized by a woman. <laughs> yeah, which is real interesting because this comes a year after a very, probably one of Don Siegel's strangest and most maligned films, A Southern Gothic, The Beguiled. Did you ever see that? I did not see it, no. So I'll just run through with this briefly because, uh, you know, because you, you didn't get a manage to see this one. So Don Siegel, who actually later on, 
I'm not going to get into that. Really nailed Clint with some with something he would never be able to shed. <clears throat> but Clint is in The Beguiled from 1971. He plays the American Civil War uh, Union soldier, I believe, who's been wounded. So he's been found by these women in this house. The house has nothing but women. So the, the Confederate soldiers keep coming around, and they're trying to hide him, save him. And he, you know, he's been wounded, so he's starting to recover. So his is really interesting. Clint starts having sex with a variety of the women, right? You never, one never really looks at or looked at Clint Eastwood like a sex object. I mean, handsome guy. We, we always said that. But we never really see that going on, this picture. But when some of the women in his house are sisters, allegedly. So, But when one finds out he fucked the other sister, she beats the shit <laughs> causing him to fall and break his leg. And then now here's where it gets into Stephen King territory. His leg, they refuse to help him, and he gets gangrene. This is, we're going to have to amputate his leg. Oh, jeez, like misery. Yeah. They cut his fucking leg off. This oh, is geez. the weirdest Clint Eastwood movie nobody has ever seen, because maybe it's just too dark. Yeah. It just might be too dark, because some of the women in his house... Clint refused to sleep with, right? And will they turn him into the Confederates? Or will they cut him up more? This is one of the most strangest Clint Eastwood films. One of the most maligned. And I, I have to say, people, you know, yeah, but my, my, my friend here didn't uh, wasn't able to catch up with it for the show. Yeah. But I, I will say that it's probably one of the most disturbing films. This definitely falls into that period where there are a lot of disturbing movies made between 68, 72, 73, 74. We talked about the many of our genre shows. Mm -hmm. This one features Clint but directed by Don Siegel, and I'm sure it fucked with people when they saw it in the movie theater. <laughs> because, yeah, it's like misery. It's like, which, which I hate it. You know, yes. it's, it's just... There, there are some things I didn't want to read. I was reading the book first. They're like, no, no, no. <laughs> exactly. I, I don't like to. That's sicko shit. Like, you know, what torture porn they call it, the saw yeah, and all that yeah, crap. Yeah, I won't yeah, watch yeah. that I shit. Mean, yeah, Hostile. But if you see this, it's 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 amazed how, how good he is. He, he went, Clint went outside his envelope for this. Mm -hmm. um, so interesting, because I think he would do that only occasionally. And much more so for Unforgiven after this. But next, we're going to go with Dirty Harry, right? Yes, 1971, yes. Dirty Harry. Yeah. you got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Groundbreaking, arguable kickoff to an entire decade-plus of gritty maverick cop films and Italian police Yotashi. Following in the footsteps of Bullet from our Steve McQueen show, this film from Don Siegel of Charlie Varick, The Black Windmill, and Telephone from our Joe Don Baker, Michael Caine, and Charlie Bronson shows, restarted Eastwood's career from a solely Western star to one of the main ringleaders of this sort of right-wing revenge slash clean-up-the-mean-street-style cop films. Siegel, as you can tell from his resume, is a director who actually cares about aesthetics, and it shows from the very first scene of the film opening on a gorgeous girl taking a dive into a stunning rooftop pool with a view overlooking the San Francisco Bay. He utilizes interesting camera angles, lens choices, and filters, like long, loving zooms in, out, and up buildings, nigh Argento style, mm. close-ups on a silent sniper rifle up the barrel, and views from its crosshairs, you know, it's everything. It's crazy. <laughs> Leaving the landscape and cinematography very much surface-level attention-grabbing and the focus of the film throughout. 
It's the sort of thing you just don't see anymore, having been lost in the increasingly set-bound, technology-driven, and eventually CG-happy crap cinema of the 80s to the modern day, which are more concerned with ADD baiting quick cuts, fast zooms, and shaky cam close-ups than the languid, luxuriating cinemascapes of the late 60s and 70s, which were in all objectivity the true golden age of cinema, and comics for that matter, hence why the show mainly focuses on same. It takes a full six minutes of lavish cinematic aesthetics before a single line of dialogue is spoken, as a breezy, very television cop show soundtrack from Lalo Schifrin blares almost Shaft style. Cult favorite John Vernon of our Michael Caine show's Black Windmill and The Uncanny from our Amicus show, seedy Harry Guardino of Roller Coaster, and Batman's Vincent Van Gogh himself, Woodrow Parfait, also of Charlie Varick, Planet of the Apes from our Go Ape show, and Stay Hungry, discussed in our Arnold Schwarzenegger show, all stars the mayor, police lieutenant, and, well, Mr. Jaffe from The Luncheonette, in this tale that seems very much inspired by the same city's Zodiac killer a year or two prior. A nutjob going by the name of Scorpio is killing random people all around the city and demanding exorbitant ransoms from the mayor to ostensibly stop. Despite his being completely against the idea, Eastwood is assigned a rookie partner and directed to deliver the ransom. There are some semi-related and unrelated mini-adventures along the way involving bank robbers and Clint getting beaten up when they assume he's a peeping Tom plaguing the area. But after a botched setup to catch Scorpio and his partner getting shot, Scorpio admits he has no intention of stopping ransom or no. Despite finally getting the upper hand and beating a confession out of the guy, the illegality of his police brutality methods comes around to fuck him in the ass, leaving Scorpio free to continue his spree and Clint reprimanded. And of course, he's pissed off at the system rather than his own inability to play by the rules of his job. Now, using his spare time to hunt the killer, he finally kills the son of a bitch and throws his badge away in disgust. Roll credits. Beyond expressing the frustrations of many about the rising crime in the late 60s and early 70s drug culture and restlessness and violence in urban areas, the film also popularized the Smith & Wesson 44 caliber Magnum, which in handgun terms is a fucking cannon and hardly standard police issue. It also gave Clint a catchphrase he's still using as a doddering old Alzheimer's Republican nutjob, giving an impromptu empty chair debate stumping for fascists at the RNC. Well, at the time it seemed cool, a half a goddamn century ago. It's hardly Death Wish level controversial among certain circles, but the fact remains that while a gorgeous looking terse and rather good 70s cop film leaning Polizutashi, Dirty Harry and its subsequent sequels remain a hot button issue, dividing those who appreciate Mavericks bending the rules to get necessary results, and those who with good reason fear those in supposed quote-unquote authority, ignoring due process and stepping outside their jurisdiction and scope of influence in the course of their duties to abuse said, quote, authority and overreach the limitations thereof, stepping on individual rights in the name of ostensibly, quote, cleaning up the streets, but all too often just feeding the forecast prison industry and the coffers of the local court system. Yes, you know how I feel about police. While I do appreciate the vigilante film and still think Bernie Getz was right, the police thriller is a far more troublesome nut to crack, and I remain somewhat ambivalent about them, despite appreciating the raw emotion and cathartic thrill ride of putting down malfeasance regardless of the cost. Society deserves much better than a new Wild West, much less a fascist military state. Oh, it's... <laughs> Well, it's got that. You know, it's funny. You know, you mentioned Lalo Schifrin. You know, Lalo Schifrin was a a a, a jazz artist, and he got uh, you know playing jazz, and he he got this gig doing scores for uh, TV shows, and and uh, most famously Mission Impossible. What's the most famous? Yes, the most famous Lalo Schifrin theme ever. Dun, dun, Mission dun, Impossible. Dun, 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 dun. 
And we did a show on that. Yeah, we did a show on that. And, and, and that's pretty snazzy, too. He's very, very clever. He's very talented. He, he works with uh, percussion and, and horns. And he really does a thing. So uh, if anybody doesn't know, Lalo has a, had a lot of records out doing live gigs and other stuff around this time period. You probably look on Amazon and you know, eBay and other places. Lalo also was, a, you know, he was a hardcore jazz guy, but he just did sound, you know, working job. And you don't make money being a, a musician unless you're like super famous. We all know that. Mm-hmm. But a uh, good score for this. But although I, a good score, I say, it's a bit weird because it, it seems to be, they should, to me, set in San Fran, 71, they should have personally, I think, used maybe some psychedelic music by some of the then popular bands because the jazz music seems uh, I don't know, like it's hitting a wall. It's like hitting a wall. It's just, it seems to always take me out of this movie when I'm watching it. Mm-hmm. I find it's not matching yeah. the visuals. Personally, I, yeah, I'm a music guy. You're a music guy. I, well, from the first scene when he's down there by the cop car and they're blaring that cheesy like cop show theme, I'm like, what the fuck is this? It totally does not fit. Yeah, yeah, no, it didn't, it didn't fit. But but maybe, maybe sometimes, and there are cases where this works, where the music doesn't fit the visuals, but it works. It just because of two opposites making a whole. And okay, where do we get that? I'm going to give you a case in point. Argento's Deep Red. Yes. Goblin and any of the work they did on that uh, on the Profundo Rosso. Yo, know, it's just like camera glides. Okay, where do you get this funky project? <laughs> but it works, and nothing else would. And some nothing people say is... a lot about demons too, which I thought was really. Yeah. I thought it was a little bit off-putting, but in a way, it sort of fits with that blaring heavy metal he throws on there. It's low-grade heavy yeah, metal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I agree. Demons too, which was Argento and Lambert Baba. Yeah, and it's like the combination of Claudio Simonetti and a bunch of well-chosen metal tracks and Bill Wyman. Yeah. yeah, and we okay, well, we did shows on uh, Lamberto Bava and Argento way back when, so yeah, we covered. Yeah, that. yeah, we we anybody wants to know? We've been doing this for many years. We're old yes. school folks. We're <laughs> old school. We're granddaddy. Nearly a hundred shows. So yeah. So anyway, I you know I I like the movie. It's it's a little raw. You know, what I'm trying to say it's a little raw. Early uh, early seventies. You know, I'm not knocking the music, folks. It's just weird. Yeah, it's like. It's odd. It's intrusive into the visuals, but in a way, you can kind of get, because a lot of movies at this time period were doing stuff like this. We're a brassy, you would agree it's brassy, Yeah, right? very much so. It's almost like big band. Yeah, we're brassy, jazz. But then again, it's also like a TV cop show. So I was like, what the hell? <laughs> you know, it's not. What, I like the Polizio Teshis where they start doing people like the Jandos Brothers, Guido Mauricio, that funky sort of, you know, guitar-driven. It's very much rocky, but it also has touches of jazz and funk and fusion, I guess, to it as well. Oh, I got, I got a lot of stuff. I got a lot of soundtracks. Me too. A lot of prog, a lot of prog guys. Yes. Like Osana. And, and uh, well, you got Goblin, you got E. Libra, you got Keith Emerson did a couple of great ones. Uh, th- there's a lot of people doing those things. Oh yeah, E. Libra. Who only guys to be signed to Motown? Trans Europa yeah. Express. That's not the ones you know nowadays. The cheesy Christmas guys. This was actually like a band more like Goblin that did. Oh no. Got that with Jada Rosa or whatever the hell it was. <laughs> I had that. Yes, I, I did too. <laughs> yeah, I got the remastered vinyl, and I was like. Damn, it sounds good. You guys only did one album. But then I looked, and it was like, it was a bunch of guys who got together for one. Uh, anyway, yeah. so we got an interesting cast here. We got Andrew Robinson, pre-Hellraiser, and pre 
Palazzo's for Scorpio. John Vernon, well, we would see a couple of them. Everything from women in prison films to God knows what. Rene Santoni, I always liked him. Very nice presence in film. Very nice. He was a uh, Latino-American actor. And nice that uh, Don Siegel gave him such an interesting part. Harry Guardino, a a nice familiar face from back in the day. He'll come up in a lot of these, yeah. He'll come up in a lot of these. Another guy who could have... She's like in that Ron Liebman school. You guys, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, Harry Guardino, Ron Liebman. You know, like they had a look and they couldn't transfer that look into a major role. Yeah, I'm thinking like a Chaz Palminteri type from him. Yeah, 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 yeah something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's an interesting movie. It's, but you spoke of so many of the key points. I don't need to reiterate them. Where are you going next? Okay, High Plains Drifter, 1973. Clint does a damn sight better than his later Josie Wales and has attempted a sugar-free spaghetti western. Unlike Sugar. the flawed <laughs> unlike the flawed protagonist of The Man with No Name, The Stranger, Sabata, or Sartana, Clint's stranger is somewhat piquant and anarchistically pranksterish, albeit without any apparent sense of humor or any real character development. He's a nameless cipher who wanders into a prospecting town besieged by outlaws. The townspeople hire him as defender, but he learns that neither side is blameless. The town actually hired the bandits to kill a U.S. marshal who was sent to shut down the local gold mine due to eminent domain, which they did, but double-crossed them to get out of paying for their services, hence their terrorizing the town in retaliation. While Clint does take out the baddies, he spends most of the film fucking with the locals, demanding all sorts of arbitrary changes like making local midget Billy Curtis the lead in both Terror and Tiny Town and Little Cigars, both sheriff and mayor, demanding the bar serve patrons gratis, repainting the town and naming it Hell, and most questionably, raping both women in the cast when they complain about him. Of course, they both enjoy it. Yeah. What is this, from the pen of Brett Kavanaugh? The cast is all over the place, including Mariana Hill of Messiah of Evil, Blood Beach and Schizoid, which we discussed in our Klaus Ginty show, Dark Shadows' Burke Devlin himself, Mitchell Ryan, also of Two Minute Warning and Magnum Forest, future Clint regular Jeffrey Lewis, also of Ten to Midnight Salem's Lot and Return of a Man Called Horace, from our Charles Bronson, Toby Hooper, and Richard Harris shows, respectively, and Magnum P.I.'s Higgins, John Hillerman, also of Chinatown, from our Roman Polanski show. The biggest problem with Clint's self-directed westerns isn't just that they're absurdly self-indulgent, it's that the aesthetics suck ass. Where the spaghetti and paella western have an eerie abandoned ghost town style atmosphere and plenty of eerie nighttime activity, Clint films all his shit like an episode of the Waltons, dingy looking but so bright you have to wear sunglasses. He clearly grew up on American Western TV shows, if not the cheesy black-and-white polemic of the 1940s and 50s Western film, but without capturing the characterization and scope of a Hawks or a John Ford. The end result is overlong, boring, and television-level crap, even when he tries his damnedest, like here, to recreate what he was doing with Leone, right down to a sub-edited Doloroso siren wailing on parts of the soundtrack. No question this is Clint's best Western of his own, just by dint of what he's trying and failing to copy, but it still falls flat. Oh, this is another weird one. Yeah, you know, this is uh, 73. And so Clint's coming off a couple of Westerns and Dirty Harry. And yeah, as you said, he plays the stranger. So much has been made of this film where is Clint the devil? Is, he Clint, is Clint Staten? You know, what, what is his end game in all this? Uh, and yeah, you have Verna Bloom, who, although a bit matronly, was doable, and Mariana Hill, you know, same there. And you had an interesting sort of cast of TV-ish people. You know, a lot of these people didn't do too much television, but they're familiar faces. But 
I don't know. You know what rubs me wrong about this movie is that it felt like a Clint Eastwood Satanist film. <laughs> I'm sorry. But yo, I get it. You disagree. But I was like, fuck. You know, you, you come to this town on the edge. You rape the women. You burn it to the ground. And you're exacting revenge on whom for what? A lot of it is very weird. And you know what? You hit a key point a couple of 20 minutes ago, half an hour ago, when you said, oh, Clint, well, he hooked up with some San Francisco girl. Maybe Clint hooked up with some San Francisco girl into something. Uh-huh. And like we talked about in our season of 70s show. <laughs> you never know. You never know, because there is obviously something going on with High Plains Drifter that nobody has ever been able to crack. Now, the script is by well-respected scriptwriter Ernest Tiddyman, who will... A lot of crime films. Right. Who will work with what you give him. So if you say, this is what I want you to do, I, I don't agree. You know, you said it was too bright. You know, Bruce Sertes has been Clint's cinematographer for fucking decades. Yeah, he has a problem sometimes for delineating between the dark blacks and, and uh, mid, mid lights. But Bruce is a fine cinematographer. It's just, it's a weird, dark fucking movie. And it's like another one of those, you know, like to beguile, play Misty for me. It's another one of those weird freaking movies movies. It's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't help matters that if you find many of the trailers in this picture, some of the characters are screaming out, why? Yeah, you know, it's like, what the hell is going on? The devil came to town. You know, it's like... Yeah, it's, he's very capricious. He's really just fucking with him for most of the film. Like, why yeah, are you doing this? Yeah, <laughs> fully, fully, yeah. So, uh, 1973, Magnum Force. This is the 44 Magnum, most powerful handgun in the world. It could blow your head clean off. So tell me, do you feel lucky? And so the film unironically has Eastwood in tone during the opening credits as the red screen hand holding said revolver turns to point at the viewer before he fires. <laughs> Just so you know where you stand with a guy with his rather reprehensible political social beliefs. Why do they call you Dirty Harry? That's one thing about our Harry. He doesn't play any favorites. Harry hates everybody. Insert slurs for Brits, Irishmen, Jews, Italians, blacks, whites, and Chinese. All in one quick sentence. New Porter, Chico Gonzalez. How does he feel about Mexicans? Hate him, especially, insert slur for Hispanics. Ted Post, also of Beneath the Planet of the Apes, Good Guys Wear Black, and the bizarre The Baby, the first two of which were discussed in our Go Ape and Chuck Norris shows, directs this interesting anomaly in what was to become a decade-and-a-half-long Dirty Harry series. While Harry Callahan is still the same far-right racist prick as he was in the first film, there's a significant change. Post seems to be very pointedly trying to recast Eastwood as a cop of the conscience, turning against and taking down a rogue group of vigilante thin blue liners, espousing the very fascist-leaning values his old character spouted and enacted in the prior film. It's as if Death Wish 2 were directed by Ron Howard, taking on a job saying, Hey, I disagree with all this vigilante business. Chuck, why don't you use your experience as one to take down a bunch of copycats this time? Now, that said, it makes for a far less morally complicated view. This time, Harry isn't just shooting himself in the foot in the course of trying to dispense due justice. He's actually the good guy this time. Dark Shadows' Burke Devlin himself, Mitchell Ryan, Vegas' Dan Tanna, and Spencer for Hire, Robert Yurick, Don't give up on us, baby. Starsky and Hutch, and Salem Lot's David Soul from our Toby Hooper show. Hal Holbrook of Capricorn One, The Fog, Crap Show, and Bear Costume Frat Boy Slasher Girls' Night Out, the former two of which we talked on our Elliot Gould and John Carpenter shows. Tubby, younger brother of Robert Mitchum, who we did a show on, and bit player in both Dirty Harry and The Enforcer, John Mitchum. 
and the voice of Johnny Quest, Tim Matheson, also co-star as members of the squad. This film isn't as good as Dirty Harry, but it's still more than watchable. In fact, it's damn decent for the type. That said, while Post's approach is still reasonably languid by comparison to the MTV-style, high-speed, tech-happy, but ultimately completely vapid nonsense thrill-ride of modern cinema, he isn't half the director Siegel was, and the aesthetics are considerably toned down here. Well, it's early John Milius. And so, you know, early, you know, everybody has to start out. It's early John Milius. And I like that. Who was that? I wasn't paying attention the first few times I saw it. And then I watched it again, and like Clint's Asian neighbor, she's Japanese. And she's coming out to him, and he's coming out to her, and he's like, you have a thing, you know? And it's like, it's sweet. It's sweet. It's like a sweet moment. I'm like, okay. So maybe Inspector Dirty Harry Callahan isn't a racist fuck as much as we thought he was. Even despite that speech in the beginning. <laughs> Even despite that speech in the beginning. What's interesting about this is it begat this whole sub-genre of bad cops versus everybody. Yeah. It's well done. It's well done. You know, it's uh, Ted Post was somebody of a journeyman director, but sometimes he hit on things at work. Beneath the Planet of the Apes, this, uh, John Milius is, you know, and John Milius did this with Michael Cimino. So, you know, the deer hunter. So, you know, you have some interesting people working on the script. So, Hal Holbrook, what can you say about that guy? It could be an interesting show one day. David Soul, pre-Starsky, Notch. But it was before his record. Yeah. <laughs> Jim Madsen, pre-everything. Mitchell Ryan, pre-his story TV stuff. I mean, it's a lot of people we would recognize pre-their TV television fame. And Felton Perry. Felton Perry's another one. Well, Ryan in Dark Shadows was well before this. But yeah, he definitely was making a comeback at that time. Because he kind of got booted for being a drunk. And I think he had a slump for a while there. What was that? Oh, Mitchell Ryan? Yeah. Oh, okay. He was drunk? Apparently so, yeah. Damn, isn't everybody? <laughs> I think we talked it in our uh, Dan Curtis in the 70s show because we touched on Dark Shadows. We were talking more about the movies and everything else that came afterwards. But yeah, we might have mentioned something there. Wow, we got to do a show, Actresses Drunks. <laughs> well, we did a couple already. <laughs> we did Richard Harris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to do Richard Burton. We did Oliver Reed. No, and if you want to go for Insane, we did Klaus Kinski. Yeah, we did Klaus, yes. <laughs> Great show, people. Check out our Klaus Kinski show. No. One of my favorites. So, Magna Force is a, uh, it's a tricky movie because although it feeds into one demographic, it feeds into the other. It feeds into the, the right wing, we will protect you, and also feeds into the left wing, we have to protect ourselves. Mm hmm and so, you know, from you, <laughs> from you. Right. And it's very well done. Interestingly enough, it's it's a bit long at two hours. You know, movies of this time period weren't that long. It's funny. It's a little too brightly shot, I would say. Um, yeah, it's definitely nowhere near as aesthetic or well, uh, well directed, I should say, as uh, Don Siegel's job before that. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree. And, uh, but it's still very watchable. And like I said, it's less morally conflicted because of what you mentioned about this conflict between, all oh, is he on the right side of history or is he a vigilante slash fascist? Or, you know, where is he really standing? Here? Yeah, where is it's he? not as clear yeah, cut. It's not clear cut. It's not clear cut. Although the last portion of the film has some very interesting things 
things going on. It's funny to see, well, not funny, but it's interesting to see actors later on who have become, I don't know, television or movie mainstays like David Saul, Tim Madsen, as like happy-go-lucky nice guys to be like evil fox yes. behind a badge. You know, it, 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 it's worse than Serpico in that respect. Yeah, I tell you, I tell you, I tell you two short stories. Uh, one, when this first came out, there was a, a Dirty Harry marathon. I went to visit my friend in Brooklyn, and uh, this just opened up, and they were doing this and uh, Dirty Harry, and it was just about four hours, you know, and uh, some lady came from the box office and said, "Are you Lois?" I said, "Why?" Your mother called. You've been here too long. The oh movie's not over. There's the second film, Magnum Force. And apparently she didn't know that we've seen two pictures. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Italian mother there. Okay. Italian mother, yeah, yeah. Just like a Jewish mother in that respect. <laughs> I was like, no, no, we're not finishing Magnum Force. <laughs> and the other story was my dad had a friend that was under his wing. Name was Al Green. That's his real name. I was gonna say it can't be Al Green, the singer. No, that's okay. I like <laughs> it. He, he became a Vietnam Special Forces and became a, a Green Beret. And Al Green was a dead ringer in Canadian And Al Green, the guy he knew, sounded like he talked like that. Did not with effort. This is like he just. And I said to him, Hey Al, you related to Canadian what? He's like, No. No, no, no. I'm like, wow. And and the funny thing was, it would come up over the years. It's like, every time I look at this guy, I'm like, oh. My dad said the stuff happened in Vietnam, and so he was a little off. And I was like, the last time I saw him was at my father's funeral. Never been able to find him since afterwards. But I was like, if there's anybody I ever met that looked like Cleeswood, sounds like Cleeswood, I met a guy. <laughs> so there's that. So Magna Force, a very interesting film. This whole thing of bitching. Next. So uh, next, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Mm -hmm. Bank robber hiding out, posing as a preacher man, Clint Eastwood winds up as de facto pals with Stay Hungry's goofy, pudgy Jeff Bridges, who's a con artist and car thief. And we talked that film in our Schwarzenegger show. The two manage to pick up a few undiscriminating young 70s girls and get laid a few times, but the fun and games turn into a de facto pseudo-heist film when Clint's old gang smokes him out for the loot, which is gone as the place he stashed it has been renovated and replaced. Now they all attempt a new bank robbery, but things go sideways to a rather random series of events. People get shot, the cops are after them, and these two get so badly beaten that Bridges gets a nasty concussion, acts weird, and kicks off as Eastwood drives off into the sunset. Wow, what a depressing 70s take on the Road Buddy film. For most of the running time, it's one of those goofy male bonding things. Then it seems to be turning crime film all of the getaway that we covered in our Steve McQueen show. And all of a sudden, it's Dog Day Afternoon, Vanishing Point, or the end of Easy Rider. Sheesh. Vic Tabak, Mel from Alice, the cheap detective, and teen sex comedy lover boy. George Kennedy of the hilarious airport films, The Human Factor. And Nico Mastarakis' Nightmare at Noon, which I covered in my career-spanning chat with Nico over at Third Eye. And some print reviews of the various airport films on thirdeyecinema.wordpress.com. Daisy Duke, Catherine Bach of The Dukes of Hazard, Burt Reynolds' Hustle and Cannibal Run 2, and Cynthia Rothrock's Rage and Honor from our Burt show. And my career-spanning chat with Cynthia Rothrock over at Third Eye. And Jeffrey Lewis of Return of a Man Called Horace from a Richard Harris show. Every Which Way But Loose, Salem's Lot from a Toby Hooper show, Bronson's Ten to Midnight from a Bronson show, and Van Damme's Double Impact from our John Claude Van Damme show all show up. 
but it's really all about this vaguely homoerotic relationship between the annoying young Bridges and father figure Eastwood. It's really no surprise it comes from the Deer Hunter's Michael Cimino, unpleasant films to despise existence and slit your wrist by. <laughs> oh, man, I, I, I really like the Deer Hunter. Don't fuck with me on that. Um, I'm surprised you're still alive. Don't, <laughs> you didn't kill yourself? It's a long movie, but don't mess with me. So, um, yeah, it's a, weird, it's a weird buddy heist picture. You pretty much described everything about it. Didn't Catherine Bach marry Ringo? That's Barbara Bach, the Italian one. Catherine Bach, I don't know what the hell she did besides Dick's Hazard. <laughs> Is she a sister? No. I don't, think, I don't think they're related. Oh, well, we got to find out. That's it. we got to look that one up. <laughs> so anyway, so you have George Kennedy again, Jeffrey Lewis again, Gary Busey. Poor Gary Busey. We're not going to go into that. Uh, Rick Tayback, Dub Taylor. Dub Taylor. <laughs> yes. No, a bunch of, a bunch of eccentric. It, I think the casting call was like, are you a character actor and are you eccentric? So, um, <laughs> yes, there, what's unspoken about this picture is the homoerotic relationship between Clayton's protege, Jeff Bridges. Uh, Jeff clearly, to me, has a sort of uh, either aneurysm or something else going on midpoint in the film, late in the film. And yeah, after he gets beat up. After he gets beat up, and Clint doesn't realize what's going on. It's, it's, just, it's kind of subtle in a way, but then it's also, you sort of realize that Clint's not the stupid realist that, like, Jeff is hit so hard that, you know, it's, it's a weird movie. It's, it's, it's a crime movie, it's a heist film, it's very unusual, but a lot of Michael Cimino films are kind of weird. <laughs> and, aye, aye, aye. But, yeah, it's one that should be seen, I think. So, in 1975, The Iger Sanction. Mm. I can't believe you're a stewardess. Actually, I'm not. I'm a skyjacker in drag. If you just give me your name, I'll report it to the proper authorities when we land. Jemima. And I'm Uncle Ben. I'm serious. My mother was hooked on being ethnic, or else turned on by a pancake. Clint directs one of his better films for this action-adventure-come-spy film, where he's a former government hitman gun art professor. He finds himself blackmailed by former boss Thayer David, Ben, and Count Patoffi of Dark Shadows into another hit, or they'll tip off the IRS to his private art collection, which is filled with louver-worthy masters. He pulls off the job and gets hit on by cute stewardess Bonetta McGee of Kinski's The Great Silence, Blackula, Hammer, Detroit 9000, Shaft in Africa, and the Norlis tapes from our Black Exploitation and Dan Curtis in the 70s shows. They screw, but she's gone in the morning along with the tax exemption letter of legitimate ownership that he got for the hit. Turns out he's wanted for a second job, which he takes on because the target killed an old Vietnam War buddy of Clint's. He hits up another old war buddy, the ubiquitous George Kennedy, to learn climbing so he can infiltrate a mountain climbing expedition the target is part of, though no one actually knows who the target is among that group. At the mountain climb training camp that Kennedy runs, Clint is taught to climb by a smoking hot Native American, Brenda Venus of Pam Greer's Faxi Brown from our Pam Greer show, and the Claudia Jennings flick Death Sport, who eggs mom by never speaking and flashing her tits at him from a higher peak, only to vanish when she gets there. Later, she shows up in his cabin and strips, my God, what an ass, ugh, but then tries to kill him. Apparently, she was hired by another old associate of Clint's, the extremely fey Miles, ubiquitous TV bit player Jack Cassidy, husband of the Partridge family's Shirley Jones, and father to both David and Hardy boy Sean Cassidy, who actually has a Pekingese named Faggot, believe it or not. He effectively kills Miles, and with Kennedy, joins the climb he was sent to infiltrate. The expected alpine hijinks ensue until the twist baddie and his unexpected connection to the lovely Miss Venus is revealed. McGee reappears in time for a presumed happy ending. 
This is a damn good film, though it's a bit hard to classify. Is it a military film, an action-adventure, even what it most closely appends to, a straight-up spy film? Yeah, yes and no. It's complicated. But it's a lot of fun. There's plenty of eye-candy distaffy interest, even beyond Venus and McGee. Cassidy and Kennedy are always welcome, and the form are quite amusing as an out-and-proud flaming queen, and the exterior location shoots are often quite gorgeous. It's definitely recommended. It's a very good one. No, no, it's, it's, a, it's a movie that people probably don't revisit as far as Clint Eastwood goes, but The Iris thinks it's very much an adventure film. Probably, probably not as satisfying as Murray Eagle's Deer, but it's, it's, it's almost in that vein about 10 years later. Good cast, George Kennedy, Jack, Jack Cassidy, don't get me started. You know, like, <laughs> so he's married to uh, Shirley Partridge, and... <laughs> Uh, and, and he had to, and Jack always seemed to be a queen. Yes, he does. Always. And, <laughs> yeah. He always seemed to be a queen. You remember all those Columbo shows where Jack kept showing up as different I'm people? actually wondering if he was ACDC because, you know, yes, he had Sean Cassidy and he had David Cassidy and he was married to her. But I don't know. He always really seemed gay. <laughs> Yeah, ACDC, yeah, which yeah. is fine. Nothing yeah, wrong with that whatever. in our book, but whatever I'm just saying, <laughs> I never seen Jack as a, you know. No, I don't think he ever did that. That's the point. He never I don't really think he ever did that. And, yeah. and, 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 and fuck, I, what was that? Gosh, I was watching this Columbo thing. We were trying to do, I think we aborted it. We I wanted to, to do one, but you are like, I don't want to watch all the way to this, you know, 80 episodes or whatever the hell it was over the years. Yeah, there was a lot of episodes, but I was watching like three that Jack showed up as different people. Yes. Because they, like Mission Impossible, they frequently cast, recast actors in yep. different roles. I'm like, it's just the same part. <laughs> <laughs> Every time. Like, yeah. Yeah, a very interesting movie, though, uh, Iger Sanction. And it's actually, it showed, it's directed by Clayton, and it showed, like, the uh, chilly atmosphere of uh, mountain climbing. It's a bit different. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah I mean, it's, like, sort of Bondy and Eurospy-ish, but it's ish. not, it, yeah. it reminds me of, like, something like Charlie Varick, but not really. I not mean, it's, really. No. You know, it's sort of um, Alistair McLean-ish, but not really. Not yeah. really. Yeah, Maybe yeah. that's why people don't talk about it because it kind of falls between genres. But it's very entertaining. It's very worth yeah, it's, your time. Worth, worth going back to. So, uh, 1976, the outlaw Josie Wales. Jesus. <laughs> Clint is a, a Civil War era pioneer whose place is burned down, and his family is massacred by sleazebag Bill McKinney and his ragtag de facto militia, strangely supporting the Union. He buries them, teaches himself to shoot, and joins up with a similar militia of Confederate supporters run by John Vernon of Dirty Harry, Charlie Varick, the Black Windmill, Drum, and the Uncanny, which we covered in our show Don Baker, Michael Caine, Black Exploitation, and Amicus shows. They get convinced to surrender to the Union, but winds up getting gunned down by Bill McKinney and his pals as traitors. Clinton, one pal who didn't want to surrender, survive, but the latter dies soon after for being shot by them. Now Clint has a price on his head pursued by anyone looking to cash in. Along the way, he builds a new de facto family, first Chief Dan George, a shadow in the Hawk and Americathon, then a young squaw he saves from being raped by dirty fat guys at the local country store, who then winds up banging old Chief Dan after trying to kill him for leaving her behind. Yeah? He then rescues common-law wife-turned loony Sandra Locke, looking damn good here despite the dingy old West pauper clothes, 
from yet again being raped and sold off by yet another band of scumbags who steal shit to trade with the Comanches, led by crazy John Quaid, who we'll address later. He even picks up old bat Paula Truman of the Anderson tapes from a Sean Connery show, and village people can't fest you can't stop the music, and some of our farmhands before making a peace treaty with the Comanche, taking over an abandoned ranch and fending off McKinney's militia, leading to a final den on Mont where all his friends and companions pretend Clint is dead so that he can start over without a wanted poster on his head. Clint himself directed this one, but it's surprisingly dull and slow-moving. It's literally 45 minutes in before he even encounters Chief Dan George and starts the plot moving for the first time since the opening credits. You could have chopped out everything from his family being killed and his learning to shoot so that he can help for revenge, and that without missing a beat. Just say why he's a president and say in a voiceover or something. It's ridiculously self-indulgent, like most Eastwood Westerns, and surprisingly short on character development all around. While hardly the worst of American Westerns, always far inferior to their Italian and European progeny of the late 60s and 70s, it far from lives up to its reputation, a few lingering shots of Locke's naked ass aside. Well, you know, it's uh, if you're expecting more of High Plains Drift, oh, no. it's, it's sort of like High Plains Drift Alight. In a way, I don't know. Interesting cast, uh, maybe not used to their potential. I mean, we, we do have Chief Dan George and Bill McKinney. <laughs> we all know Bill McKinney. John Vernon, Sam Bottoms, TV, ubiquitous presence. Matt Clark, who saw this guy in lots of movies in the 70s and 80s. William O'Connell, from way back in the day, was in this. Sandra Locke, I, you know... No. Yeah, I'm gonna get to her later. <laughs> I, I I I'm not quite sure how you feel about her, but but Clint Eastwood felt about her a lot. So it's an interesting film, I will cautiously say, but it's no high flames drifter. No. So uh, I think also in 1976, The Enforcer. Yeah. $14,379. You took out two front doors, one front window, and two feet of counter, plus damages to the stock and one city vehicle total, not to mention three hostages in the hospital, all of whom will probably sue the city. For what? Excessive use of force. For your information, the minority community has had it with this kind of police work. By the minority community, I suppose you mean the hoods. Dirty Harry is back at it, though it's hard to put down his taking down the trio of armed hostage-taking sleaze bags, running the request a getaway car into the store they're holed up in, and gunning their asses down, even shooting one running upstairs in the balls. <laughs> While Harry is still a colossal dick, this time he's paired up with Cagney and Lacey's no-nonsense Time Daily, also of Telephone from our Bronson and Donald Pleasant shows, due to the then-new affirmative action laws. He mocks her for being a death sergeant turned rookie B-cop, but she winds up saving his ass later, presumably putting that whole issue to bed. It's all about a weatherman-style domestic terrorist group setting off bombs and working crimes to fund nefarious activities, and there's some business involving the Panthers being connected to them, and the mayor trying to use Harry nailing one of the arms-dealing members thereof for political points and getting him suspended for refusing, but it's really all about putting Eastwood back in the racist, misogynist, gun-crazy, zero-rules, maverick cop role again after the more arguably left-leaning makeover of the last film. Yay? Brad Dillman of the Mephisto Waltz, The Swarm, and Escape from Planet of the Apes from our Go Ape show also stars as another member of police officialdom for Eastwood to defy. But the only sympathetic character here is Daly, who shows her acting chops and comes off rather likable, particularly given the shit attitude Eastwood spares no opportunity to express towards her and the very idea of a lady cop. James Fargo, who gave us the nastiest and most mean-spirited rape-and-murder film of Chuck Norris films, Force Vengeance, a former Chuck Norris show, is clearly sharpening his directorial knives for said effort, making this one the least comfortable, not to mention dingy-looking, unesthetic of the series thus far. 
even though if you watch it in the right mindset, it's still a reasonably strong and occasionally quite effective film, which is one of the main reasons at least the 70s stretch of this film series still works today. I disagree with the anti-fascist, not to mention racist, police with unlimited powers and freedom of action stance. Taken akin to a Mauricio Murley or a Bronson film, generally tautly scripted and fairly well directed, and satisfying on a base emotional level as some especially heinous baddies are unprotected by civilized society and its laws, and therefore do get their due comeuppance. It's not, yeah, it's not too bad. It's actually... Yeah, no, it is. And I think a lot of it is Don Daly, honestly. <laughs> Which yeah, you never thought was, I would say, because I never liked Cagney and Lacey. But. No, a lot of us do Don Daly. A lot of us do the claim. He's the main guy. He's steering this wheel. You know, the screenplay uh, Sterling Sullivan, who, uneven, hello? <laughs> you know, Sterling Sullivan's un- uneven screenwriter. I like the supporting cast because it's like old school week for TV people. <laughs> you know, you got Bradford dealing with I, we already mentioned Harry Guardino and a couple of other familiar faces. I'm not thrilled with it in the uh in the Harry Callahan, my Lou, in Eastwood's dirty Harry thing. I think it's a lesser film. But yo, know, it's 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 quite watchable. And it's actually not bad. And as you said, a lot a lot of the not bad as due to Tyne Daly. It was quite good. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, 1977, The Gauntlet, the fifth film that Clint both directed and starred in, this is another one of those cop transporting a witness cross country while targeted by the mob affairs, predating both 48 Hours and Fred Williamson's Death Journey, which we covered in our Black Exploitation show. This is also one of the first films to pair Eastwood with his decade-long-plus lady friend, Sandra Locke, who, in this film, gave me a short-lived appreciation for in my youth. <laughs> Locke, who turned out to be a bit zany and quite litigious in real life, is a prostitute with ties to the mob who needs to be transported from Phoenix to Las Vegas for trial. Unfortunately for beleaguered cop Eastwood, the whole thing's a setup, and both of them are on a hit list from both the mob, his new boss in the department, and the DA, who are both tightly connected to La Cosa Nostra. The bulk of the film is Locke running around in tight-fitting 70s jeans and ultimately coming on to sassing and talking dirty with Eastwood and in one of the funniest scenes one fat hick cop Bill McKinney of She Freak Burt Reynolds' queasy deliverance which we covered on a Burt Reynolds show Cleopatra Jones from our Blaxploitation show Bronson's Breakheart Pass from our Bronson show and several Eastwood films even Walker Texas Ranger from our Chuck Norris show who asks Locke increasingly sleazy questions about her profession while Eastwood gives him disbelieving double takes them little old melons all pink and tight. That little ass a-humping and a-jerking around. I bet it don't take much to get you all wet and hot to trot. Does your wife know you masturbate? The rest of the film is the two of them on the run, by carjacking, train, and even on foot, finally customizing a bus they hijack with some scrap metal to barrel through a literal gauntlet of police who've been told they're fugitives and murders of the hapless hit cop who was peppered with machine gun fire not long after they switched routes and transports. This one's less of a dirty Harry-style cop film than a somewhat gritty Cannon-style affair akin to a Bronson or early Chuck Norris film, and we've done separate shows on both that studio and both of those men previously. It was a favorite since I first caught it in the early 80s, and it still holds up, with Locke's surprising intelligence given the role here, still raising a few eyebrows and adding a bit of unexpected je ne to their on-screen and presumably off-screen relationship. Of all people, Mara Corday, who shared the screen with Clint way back in 1955 for Tarantula and subsequently starred in The Giant Claw and The Black Scorpion, gets a bit part herein, and would again in his later Dirty Harry films, Sudden Impact. Nice touch, that. 
Locke, who was long married as a beard to a gay man, seriously, and Eastwood, who was departing his own troubled marriage at the time, hadn't yet come out publicly as a couple, but there is a definite undercurrent of the two being an item here, even more so than Bronson with his frequent co-star and wife Jill Ireland. It's no masterwork of modern cinema, but who was expecting that? It's fun, the performances are solid, and there's plenty of tension, intrigue, a bit of comedy, and a hint of romance to boot. I still love this film. No, it's, I agree. It's it's way above average for this kind of thing. Yes. It's a lot of fun. It's got a great poster art by the late, uh, what's his name? But we'll get to that. Here's the interesting thing. It's supposed to be a Brando and Barbara Streisand vehicle. What? Yes. And then Brando... Re- Probably riffing on Alan the Pussycat, which we'll cover in our George Siegel show. And then time. Brando withdrew, and there was supposed to be Steve McQueen and Barbara Streisand vehicle. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. But that, that fell apart. So somehow it ended up in Eastman and Sandra Locke, which probably decent. Okay, we're going to get a lot of this money. But you know what? This thing is pretty good. It's, it's actually, in a way, proto... Imagine Assault on Precinct 13 on the road. You know, it's like that kind of thing. Like, these guys always have to deal with people coming at them. And, and uh, very much so. Uh, it's, it was a huge hit for these, but more so than his normal uh, Dirty Harry films. Because I think people have tracked it by the poster. Yeah, the poster was great. The poster was great. Oh, gosh, who did that poster? It was the guy who did the um, all the Conan posters. Oh, really? Yes. These have such great poster artwork in the 70s. I'm sorry. Uh, I mean, yeah. even stuff like Neil Adams used to do. You know, he also did the cover to uh, Jailbreak for uh, Thin Lizzy. For Thin Lizzy, uh, yes. But, you know, there was so much great art in those things. And then you never see them reproduced now when they put out a DVD or a blue. Because I guess the poster people want money for it. I don't know. But, yeah, I mean, posters nowadays suck ass. I, 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 <laughs> I would have thought gorgeous. the score would have been more thumping, more percussive. It's not. It's not. Mm. It's probably the one thing that hurts the movie is the, the jazz score. It's R. Pepper, John Thaddeus, two really good guys, you know, uh, working with Jerry Fielding, another guy but working a lot of films. And, you know, Eastwood's strong affinity for jazz doesn't really lend itself to a chase film much. Yes. And so there's that. Uh, we'll run into more problems with his taste in music as we go on. But go ahead. Okay. Next. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. But yeah, I will say that as silly as it is, The Gauntlet has always been one of my favorite Clint Eastwood films. So, 1978, Every Which Way But Loose. Anyone remember Greg Evigan? Before My Two Dads, he was actually a short-lived heartthrob to Horny Housewives Across America, believe it or not. Yep, his big claim to fame was the show BJ and the Bear, released within a month or two of the like-minded Dukes of Hazard back in 79. And like the latter, running for a few years into the 80s, it borrowed less from Burt Reynolds and his fast cars and moonshine stick of White Lightning, Gator, and the Smokey and the Bandit films than Peckinpah's enjoyable CB-crazed catch-in convoy with Chris Christopherson and this film in its sequel. Featuring Clint as a pre-over-the-top, roadhouse-style trucker tough guy in a t-shirt, like his boulderizing Hallmark-style antecedent, he had a partner of sorts in an orangutan named, no, not Bear, but Clyde. Like those later films, he makes extracurricular cash as a bare-knuckle ballroom brawler when he used to have such things alternating with lady mud-wrestling for drunken entertainment and off-the-books betting out in the sticks. He's also got a thing for honky-tonk country gal singer longtime lady friend Sandra Locke, who can't sing worth a shit whose disappearance puts him on the open road in search of. 
Along the way, he gathers a Blues Brothers scavenger hunt style group of disparate enemies who all chase him around, like the bikers he steals and sells off the hogs of, or the cop he beats up in a bar fight. But if you can't beat him alone, his brother Jeffrey Lewis, of a return of a man called Horace from a Richard Harris show, is there to save the day. Up to now, I'm the only one dumb enough to want to take you further than your bed. Locke turns out to be a careerist piece of shit, but Lewis scores a lady friend above his grade, tightrope in the vacation films Beverly D'Angelo, who we also spoke over in our Richard Harris show here as a moppy-haired redhead. Big fat character arc John Quaid of everything from 92 in the Shade from a Peter Fonda show to Roots, Hammer, and Papillon, the last two from our Laxploitation and Steve McQueen shows, is the leader of the Swastika Sporting 1%ers, which is fitting given his proto-fascist Christian nationalist activism. Their ancient foul-mouthed mother, Ruth Gordon of Scavenger Hunt, Harold and Baud, and Rosemary's Baby from a Roman Polanski show, and the bird-flipping monkey Clyde provide some low-comedy laughs. Surprisingly, this one was directed by mean-spirited James Fargo of The Enforcer and Chuck Norris's Force Vengeance. Go figure. Propelled by the pre-existing success of the sleepy Eddie Rabbit theme song and cameos and songs from fellow urban cowboy-era Nashville stars like Mel Tillis, Charlie Rich of Most Beautiful Girl in the World fame, and Ronnie Millsap, this one was a huge hit for Clint to the point of being a sort of cultural touchstone of the mid-to-late 70s. Naturally, there was a sequel. It has its merits, particularly if you like these sort of countrified comedy action films or Burt Reynolds in his heyday. Oh, yeah, 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 you're right. It has its merits. Uh... You just have to plug your ears when Sandra Locke tries to sing. <laughs> oh, it's fine. It's a, it's a welcome cast, but it's funny how Clint reused people from previous movies. You know, he started to become a, um, I like you. You're going to work with me again. Like Dan Vadis, who was a couple of these sword and sandal films from back in the day. You know, he was a big, beefy guy. He became the biker, the bouncer. Uh, William O'Connell, who we knew from films, same thing, similar roles. Bill McKinney, who Deliverance you now popped up often. Ruth Gordon was an interesting character, popular. And Jeffrey Lewis, always welcome. Yeah, Sandra Locke, well, you know, Clint is in narratives in love, so she's going to be in every fucking picture for a while. <laughs> and, you know, he's entitled. You know, it happened with Bert and, uh, what's her name? Sally Phil. She did a couple, yeah. Yeah, so That's true. No, it's it's okay. It's a little different because, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned James Fargo. So James Fargo usually did dark movies. So what was Clint's decision to go with him on this kind of homespun thing, if we could say that? But uh, it worked. It was a huge fucking hit, especially for the Down South Boys. Uh, they do a sequel a little bit later, but, you know, it's, uh, if you like this sort of thing, it's good for you. Yeah. Should be nice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I hear exactly what you're saying there. In 1979, Escape from Alcatraz. Wow, what a movie. Alcatraz was bit to keep all the rotten eggs in one basket. Up for robbery, grand larceny, and repeated prison breaks, Clint is a, quote, superior IQ recidivist jailbird who ain't no new fish in the pool of sharks that is the world in the world of downtime. I'm looking for a new punk. Good luck. You don't understand. I just found her. Clint fights off the same fat fuck who wanted to turn into his prison gay bitch when he plays the prison yard handoff game and comes at him with a shiv, then befriends the apparent leader of the black prisoners who saves his ass not once, but twice. Ten years ago, I was in this bar in Alabama when these two dudes started hassling me. That was their first mistake. They pulled knives. That was their second mistake. They didn't know how to use them. That was the last mistake they ever made. Seems to me you could have just pleaded self-defense. The dude's a white man, just like you. What's the flower? That's something inside me. They can't lock up with their bars and walls. 
The prisoner, danger man, and scammers Patrick McGowan, who we discussed. I know we talked in at least one of those British uh, TV yeah. shows. No, we're talking danger man. Is the hardline warden, and he's one six at this. Son of a bitch. They won't even let them talk about prison life over those phones they used to talk with family during visit hours. It's really fucked up. Someone should have warned Doc to be careful about what he painted. You're right, Warden. There's always the possibility that some asshole might be offended, isn't there? After causing the sensitive lifer turned painter Doc to flip out and cause himself severe bodily harm, Clint gathers a handful of fellow prisoners to work an unprecedented and successful escape from the rock, including Fred Ward of the still strangely unreleased DVD or Blue Cast a Deadly Spell, the Lovecraft Noir, and Danny Glover before Lethal Weapon or Predator 2. Mm. Jeez, what kind of childhood do you have? Short. It's bleak, but not grim and impossible to sit through like Papal Young, nor is it as hopeful and optimistically goofy like The Great Escape, both from our Steve McQueen show. It's a reasonably blunt, forthright, and honest appraisal of prison life and the shit that goes down inside, minus the coalitions like the Aryan Brotherhood and Black Muslim contingents that protect their own and terrorize others, and the power structure on both sides of the bars, usually based on contraband like cigarettes and sexual favors, rather than drugs or money. Those special privileges are always on the table for those who play the game with the right people. There are much darker and more forthright films, like I'm Gonna Get You Elliot Boy, a.k.a. Caged Men being a noble example. But remember, it's not just an expose of the prison system in the wake of Attica. It's also a heist variant, the escape film. And after about an hour of a somewhat cleaned-up take on what it's like inside the many alliances, intrigues, and moral compromises that entails, it turns into a particularly slow episode of Mission Impossible, which series both televised and filmic we did a show on, where it has a somewhat less thrilling and heroic take on the aforementioned Great Escape. It's a rather good film, all told, but be warned, it only tells a cleaned-up and broadly hinted at take on just how bad it is to be sent down. Ah, I mean, uh, you pretty much spoke through all the interesting portions of this. Yeah, it's it's a homogenized version of what it's like to be put in the, one of the most brutal and difficult of prisons. And uh, this is based on a true story. Yes. So, you know, Frank Morris actually did escape, played by Eastwood. Patrick Begoon, who had been MIA for a while, I'm not quite sure... I have to assume that was Clint's doing to like, who can we get? Plays award, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's a Don Siegel picture. I'm like Don Siegel, I should be killing you. Know, maybe it's ironic because of the prisoner. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's ironic. Yes, exactly. He's he's a perfect choice. Yeah. For this, he he didn't work enough in his later years, and this was surely something that really just slammed him into the spotlight, whether he liked it or not. Because he seemed to me to be the kind of actor who's like, I like doing what I do, even if I don't do it that seldom. Mm-hmm. He was very choosy. And I know that after yeah. Danger Man slash Secret Agent, that they called it here, yeah. and The Prisoner, he didn't do that much. I know he did Catch My Soul, which was great. Yeah. But uh, he kind of faded away there. And, and I'm thinking most of it was by choice. Most of it was by choice. Yeah, most of it was by choice. But so it was like, we didn't hear from him for a while, but be aside from the odd film here and there, and then he does this, which actually went up doing exemplary status in the box office. It's mm-hmm. like people like to see a guy escape. Yes. They like to see a guy who's not portrayed as like a bad guy. Get out of the system. You know, yes. So the way they portrayed Eastwood in this was, was as an intelligent guy, not as a prick, evil, devil, demon. You know? And the way that Don Siegel enveloped him in this is just like, well, there's going to be bad people in your orbit, especially the warden, McGowan. So people really aligned to that. So it was a huge hit. It's an interesting movie because it gave us a different look at Eastwood. It also gave us a glimpse of an aging Eastwood, too. Yeah. Yeah. Any which way you can in 1980. 
The bad guys always claim that both sides are the same, the good guys and the bad guys. <laughs> Despite that rather prescient assessment of modern Republican propaganda, there's precious little of value to be found this time around. Tired retread from stuntman granted director status only for Clint on this, the Deadpool and Pink Cadillac, so you know who was really pulling the strings, Buddy Van Horn. There were many sequels that not only failed to live up to the original, but simply regurgitate and retread the exact same ground to lesser effect. Case in point, gee, let's bring our bar-fighting truck driver, his brother, foul-mouthed geriatric mother, and his monkey out of self-imposed retirement, so the exact same bikers and the mob can chase after him for the exact same reasons as the first film. They're still holding a grudge. And even Locke is back, supposedly reformed and moving in with Clint as a couple again. The only difference here is that bar-fight for cash rival William Smith of Hammer Boss. <clears throat> Grave of the Vampire Conan in Hell Comes to Frogtown, is on board as a proto-MMA fighter, leaving Clint's pugilist fisticuff style at a surprising disadvantage. There's a lot more hokey comedy, way too much attention to the chimp, and a lot of ridiculous mockery of old folks, surprise, still having a sex drive. Yeesh. It's the same old, same old, minus all the country stars. The only musician this time around, outside of the guy who sings the incredibly schmaltzy title track, Glenn Campbell, is Fats Domino. Now that's country, huh? So, fans of the first film probably didn't leave too disappointed, but was there really any purpose other than a quick cash-in? Yeah, it was a cash-in. It was a cash-in. The only thing interesting about this film, I found, was, according to William Smith, to what he told me, was the partially improvised fistfight they had. <laughs> he was like, oh, Clint was mad at me. I did this, and then I did that, and then I did this, and, you know. But, yeah, you, you bring back the cast from the picture from a few years ago, but you, you need a auteur. You don't, you don't get your stuntman buddy pal to direct this, you know, because it's not a lot of Or ghost direct it. Right, because, or ghost direct, exactly. Because it, it, it's not that kind of picture. It's not like a driving movie, you know, what's that? It's not a stunt-laden movie. There's a lot of fisticuffs involved, but not that kind of film, but... And even unlike stuff like, you know, Cannibal Run 2 or Smoking the Bandit 2 or yeah. any of those kind of things, okay, yeah, it's essentially the same idea. There's no change to the plot. It's the same people from the first film going after it. It's a continuing directly from the first film. Like, we're still pissed off at what you did last time. But really? That's your story? What do we know <laughs> on a $50 million budget and make 80 which yep. is like, I, I, I guess this audio will come to you. There's no fucking jack shit. So... <laughs> <laughs> This, this must have touched such a base with the heartland of America that, what the hell that, that was the chimpanzee's name? Uh, I forgot his name. Oh, uh, Clyde. 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 People must have been buying Clyde dolls. Who the hell knows? <laughs> That's true. A foul-mouthed granny and the monkey flipping you off. That's all they wanted, and they added a lot more of yeah, it. Yeah, if the first... You even get to see the monkey having sex, he gets a girlfriend. Like, if really? the first picture did well... And so did Granny. <laughs> uh, no, she, she wasn't even a ghost. No, no. Barbara Bateman. No, hell no. No, no, no. But she gets a boyfriend in this one and talks about sex a lot. Yeah, like, ha, ha, look, old folks still fuck. Okay. Well, okay, what's next? <laughs> yeah, wait, let's walk away from that one. Uh, what a fucking movie. Anyway, Sudden Impact, 1983. And just like that, we're in the 80s, and boy, does it show. Eastwood himself takes the reins for this one, co-starring longtime common-law wife Sandra Locke, who leaves behind her likable brainy prostitute stick from the gauntlet to become a sort of dirty harry of rape victims, hunting down her abusers of a decade prior and gunning them down Miss 45 style. How can such a howl of anguish come from such a sweet girl as you? Since the incident, Locke has become a gallery exhibition-level painter, though her work is angry and disturbing, twisted faces and filled with crimson tones like a cut-rate Edward Monk, all splashed over with blood. Need a lift? Sure, baby. Then go shove a jack up your ass. 
At first she comes off as a mildly icy feminist type, but it becomes clear very early on that she is more than a bit unbalanced. This is about a million miles removed from her likable hooker with an education of the gauntlet. And while the similar Jill Ireland Bronson team similarly saw her getting a bit frumpy and businesslike in the 80s, this one leaves a sour taste in the mouth. Even by rape-revenge film standards, you find yourself rooting for Camille Keaton in The Grueling I Spit in Your Grave, Pam Greer in films like Foxy Brown and Coffee, Christina Lindbergh in Thriller, The Girls from the Rape Squad, also known as Act of Vengeance, and even her closest analog, Zoe Tamerlos in Miss 45. You really don't find a lot of sympathy with the icy schizoid lock here, and that says a lot about the woman and where things went in their real life shortly thereafter. The film spends an inordinate amount of its running time in an unrelated side story involving the mob, where he makes a local Don have a heart attack by threatening him at a family wedding, and then it's hunted by his bone breakers. Well, this provides some mildly entertaining scenes, like the one where Clint commandeers a tour bus full of old farts to catch a perp, thereby setting himself in a superiors up for a host of reckless endangerment lawsuits, but they all love his get the baddie shtick and a brief taste of excitement instead. It has nothing whatsoever to do with the main story here, though. Clint gets semi-reprimanded because two separate city's police commissioners admit they love his methods and results, but they can't officially allow it thanks to those damn oversight laws, and sent off to a barely renamed San Pablo, just so the city can't complain about misrepresentation, to look into a serial murder case there. He promptly compromises the entire investigation by fucking the perp, who he shortly thereafter susses out as such, but protects and even aids her in finishing off her hit list, going so far as tampering with and panting false evidence implicating one of the dead rapists so that she can walk off into the sunset for presumable future vigilantism. On the casting end, Pat Hingle, Commissioner Gordon, and the Tim Burton Batman, and I had said we should really do a Jack Nicholson show, but now we've made that official. Jack Nicholson is coming. And one of the cops in on the plot and the gauntlet appear as well. It's also notable for the introduction and overuse, even within this film, of what would become Ronald Reagan's other catchphrase beyond, well, which is, go ahead, make my day, which meant something else entirely when walking around very blatantly with the nuclear hot-button briefcase at every campaign stop in the hottest point of the Cold War. Fucking lunatic. If only everyone realized just how much crap he'd leave us as his legacy legislatively and economically, the film feels nothing like the free prior Dirty Harry efforts. It's so darkly lit and dingy, maniac with sunny by comparison, and it's relentlessly grim from minute one. Zero aesthetic sense, even in the damn art gallery sequences, there's shots you can barely see what's on the exhibit. Clint shows he's no great chicks as a director here, despite much better work on a few earlier films like The Gauntlet and arguably Play Misty for me. And it's the first truly unpleasant watch of the series with no cathartic relief whatsoever. Yeah, I, I, I'm not a personal fan of rape revenge films. I spit yeah. on your grave. Hell, even, even some of the uh, Golden Age porn films we discussed a while ago. Oh, God, like Summer in the City and all that? Yeah, yeah some of that stuff is like, no, it's just no. Yeah, exactly. So, interesting. To see him direct and star in a picture featuring his living lover, common law wife, mm-hmm. as a victim of such a thing. You, know, you get to the point where, like, he, isn't this kind of weird? Yeah, I think it said a lot about her and what she wanted to do and where she was going to go soon. <laughs> and also, yeah. she's very good, though. She's very good because she's she's dealing with this with this role that is tough. And and it's it's also yeah, it's it shows where Clint Eastwood some of his movies were going in a darker role, like tight yes. tightrope. And, and oh yeah, like, but I love tightrope. And, and then so he he was willing to go darker. But at what cost? Because it cost him it cost him his relationship. 
that's one thing. And another thing is, like I said, she's not sympathetic. I mean, other than the fact of what happened to her, but she doesn't pull it off. You know, the other realms that we mentioned like that, you're always rooting for the woman going, okay, get these fuckers. Here it's like, hell no, she's kind of fucked up. <laughs> well, no, that's the thing, though. That's the thing, though. So whether or not we're rooting for her, she's fucked up because. Well, we know why, yes. Yeah, we know why. So so I think he's successful in that point where she's beyond, I don't want to use the word redemption because that's incorrect. She's, she's beyond our own acknowledgement of Hey. Returning to society as a yeah, normal person. Yes, yes, maybe something <laughs> like that. Yeah. yeah. Tightrope? Tightrope, 1984. Looking at the full moon. Afraid it'll bring the crazies out? They were always out. Sort of, kind of like Kinjite, crossed with not only 10 to midnight, but cruising, develops a highly unusual entry in his filmography. With gender roles upended and all over the damn place, this is one of the whopping two films directed by a James Tuttle, whose only other entry is the weird Anthony Michael Hall mistaken identity crime flick Out of Bounds. Though apparently Clint was sick of his sluggish pace and took over the director's chair at some point here as well. A poison movie Rorschach look-alike, Jamie Rose of the great Chopper Chicks in Zombie Town and Wilderness Slasher Just Before Dawn, gets stalked on her way home from a drunken birthday blowout with the girls. She's found dead, apparently toyed with and raped by the ostensible cop she runs into outside her place, who was the same stalker she was running from, of course. Colin's single father detective Clint, whose two daughters have been pulling in enough stray dogs to make his place a kennel. He's accosted by none other than our favorite actress, <laughs> Genevieve Bujold, who we discussed our uh, adoration for in coma from our Michael Crichton show. I'm not too eager to talk with women who walk around with chips on their shoulder. I'm really not eager to talk to cops who are a chip on their shoulders, stereotype women, and they go to any lengths to avoid them. She's still got a bizarre accent, half New York, part Boston, but with a weird Euro-trash undertone. But this time, rather than an ostensible frigid ingenue like in Coma, she's playing a Tyne Daly type, all no-nonsense and rather butch, even when she and Clint fall into an odd dating relationship. What else were you wondering? What would be like to lick the sweat off your body? But even though Clint has no problem fucking some of the hookers he grills over the slowly mounting murders of Sam, he turns frigid even when in the sack with her, and if his conflicted relations with her butchness, only real interest in females being of the pay-and-throw-away variety, and being the Mr. Mom of the police department weren't cues enough, our mystery killer keeps setting up with prepaid tricks from a dominatrix to a rent boy. I hear he's gay. You like a date with him? Whoa there! So there's not only an unstated thing going on between the two of them, adding to his apparent gender confusion and conflicts, but they went right out and made it surface text, hearing parallels to Pacino and cruising yet? Bratty little girl, I bet that's her. She wants to see you again, and you can have a hard-on any time you want. Look, it's Eastwood. You know everything's got to resolve back to heteronormative by the end. He's the man's man, epitome of right-wing butchness and all that shit. But it's safe to say his issues with the increasingly shrewish, if not Arrhenius like Sandra Locke at the time, were really putting him in a strange place. Much like the divorce because, because his wife who remains in the same city as him simply wanted to pursue other things, role he plays herein. And when you cut adrift like that, the lines can tend to get surprisingly blurry in all sorts of areas. I have to respect Clint for taking such a huge risk with his frat boy pound the chest, wave the flag, and shoot them guns fan base here, and so heavily loading this one with conflicted, night-decadent sexual expansiveness. The very fact that the three movies I see as comparable are my two favorite Bronson films, and not only my favorite Pacino film, but a long-standing favorite on the level of George C. Scott's surprisingly sleazy foray into the sexual underworld hardcore, says one hell of a lot. Other than the gauntlet, Iger Sanction, and for a few dollars more, this is my all-time favorite of the man's films. If anything the guy ever did showed he has balls, this film is it. Yeah, it's a, it's a really quite strange movie. Uh, although, what was that movie? Oh, The Rookie, which I, I, uh, 
a lot of people don't like, I felt was really pretty freaking bizarre. No, it's 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 a really interesting film. It's yeah, he he's taking chances in this. He's he's definitely going for the yes. I agree with you. He's obviously affected with his personal relationship, presumably with Sandra Locke, and trying to do stuff with that. And I don't know. It, it, I like when, when actors, be it any of our beloved or any of our loved, any of our, any ones we really like, take chances. When Tightrope was, was him taking a huge chance. And uh, that's for sure. yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I right now I recommend it. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Next So the same year he does City Heat. Yeah. We talked this bizarre faux noir action comedy crime film in our Burt Reynolds show. Written by Pink Panther series Tan and Victor Victoria man Blake Edwards and directed by one of our faves, Richard Benjamin of Quark, Westworld, Love at First Bite, and Scavenger. Oh, that's a guy we were gonna talk about, remember? Yes, we should, actually. Yeah. This Starfucker throwback is so absurdly 70s, it might have been a hit if not being pulled together in the mid-80s, by which time it was an anachronism in more ways than yeah. the 40s setting would suggest. The always sullen and dialogue-like Clint Eastwood, co-stars with a tired Burt Reynolds, still doing a smoking in the bandit cannibal run stroke race fun-loving bar fighter and all-around goofball shtick, for what I believe is the last time in his filmography, a shitload of names joins them, like Mel Brooks' leading lady Madeline Kahn, Fight for Your Life's William Sanderson, Shaft himself, Richard Roundtree, and Rip Torn of Jim Brown Slaughter, Bowie's Nandefelt to Earth, Michael Crichton's Coma, and the amusing John Candy film Canadian Bacon. And we covered the first three of those in our exploitation for those who fell in Michael Crichton shows. Fame in DC Cab's Irene Cara, and in his first film role, Action Jackson licensed to kill and raw deals Robert Davy, the latter two covered in our trio of James Bond shows and our Arnold Schwarzenegger show. Sounds great on paper. The problems are Burt, who at this point in his career was aging and getting pretty crusty. This is when he started doing gritty cop films like Stick, Starkey's Machine, and Malone, rather than his likable, good-humored, southern-fried sex symbol of the 70s. And the fact that it just doesn't work as a neo-noir. It's sort of a period crime film, but noir? It's not terrible, but nah, it just doesn't work in the end. It's not terrible. It doesn't work. And uh, supposedly, or allegedly, according to what I read uh, via quotes from Burt Reynolds, there's a fight scene have a clip where he severely hurt his back. Oh, yeah. That one of him, he had to take all kinds of painkillers and shit. Yeah, take painkillers, Vicodin, and he became addicted to Vicodin for yep. decades. I can't believe this. Yep. For the rest of his career, pretty yeah, much. Yeah, for the rest At of his career. Uh, whereas... By near the end of his career, he was, I don't know, barely 100 pounds, uh, looking like a skeleton, a human flesh person. Yeah. It was very sad. It was. But Bert and Clint make a entertaining duo, but there's some, yeah. something goes wrong. And it might be it might be the, the incident or accident that occurred during production where it affected his back. Because somewhere along the way, you, you just see, like, it looks like visibly Bert has changed, too. You can see this. Yes. And, 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 like, something is going on here. And, you know, rather than, as opposed to Warner Brothers scrapping a $200 million picture, <laughs> you know, rather than scrapping a picture, they decide to, like, well, let's come back later when you're feeling better, we'll shoot around you. It has an interesting cast, Rip Torn, who, who ever thought of it? Yeah. Richard Roundtree, nice. Tony Lobianco, he's still out there. Robert, Robert Davy, pre-stardom. Pre I mean, Kara. Babe, I'm going to leave her. Yeah, really. <laughs> and, you know, other people. And so, it's not horrible. It's, it's fun. But once you know what's going on, you realize why it didn't work entirely. Yeah. Yeah. 
It feels very off. So, uh, 1988, the Deadpool. And here, the Dirty Harry series devolves into unintentional comedy. My drummer and I used to get a big laugh out of this one, particularly the absurd junkie faux metalhead Johnny Squares, hammed up to nine Ace Ventura levels of tomfoolishness by none other than Jim Carrey. Check out that laugh-out-loud take on an Ozzy Osbourne video where the overacting Carrie can't even lip-sync to a song that was never metal in the first place. He's still sublimely awful Welcome to the Jungle. Even funnier, and obviously Stone Guns N' Roses actually appear as mourners in a funeral scene later, stumbling around in the background. Want more? Harry's new psychic is none other than hammy comedian Evan C. Kim of Kentucky Fried Movie and one of my favorites, sleazy 80s unintentional comedy crime films, Penelope Spears' Hollywood Vice Squad with Frank Gorshin. Art, I have the best young pussy you ever saw. Fuck art. <laughs> as, as the Eastwood lock relationship had already gone very much south, the ostensible love interest here comes courtesy of the recently likable and vaguely Ellen Barkin as Patricia Clarkson, lovable for her continued disinterest in having kids, which I second. This is only her second film role after working with De Palma on The Untouchables, and we covered his Dress to Kill in our Michael Keane show. And I suggest maybe we should consider doing a De Palma show, but that's also on the list now. Oh, so, yeah, uh, yeah. Brian, we haven't done that, right? The film centers around Callahan becoming a cause celeb after putting out a big-time capo in jail, which gets him involved with anchorwoman reporter Clarkson, amusingly because he busted her station's camera, so he's working with her to avoid getting sued. It turns out that there's a dark web-style game out there where people bet on celebrity murders, which include Carrie's producer, Liam Neeson of Excalibur, Krull, and apparently a bit player in Chuck Norris' The Delta Force from a Chuck Norris show, and Carrie, who gets off right after that ridiculous video shoot, and Callahan are both on the hit list. The rest of the film, bar an amusing sequence where Clint ensures the mob boss he jailed calls off the hit on him, bribing a huge lifer into serving as unknowing enforcer to ensure same, is about Callahan, Kim, and his reporter pal trying to stop the celeb murders and stay alive themselves before getting the film-obsessive psycho behind the whole thing. It's a stupid 80s cop film with a terrible TV cop show soundtrack by, surprisingly enough, Lalo Schifrin. Check out one of the early action scenes, this is what I was thinking of before, where they literally give a triumphant heroic sting a la the A-team to Harry getting out of the car and shooting someone. But there's enough seediness and sub-10 to midnight over-the-top 80s absurdism to leave this a comparatively fun watch. And of course we talk one of my two all-time favorite Bronson films in our show on the man. The director is actually a stuntman. His only other jobs were on Eastwood's Any Which Way You Can and Pink Cadillac, so don't expect much on that end. But it's ten times better, not to mention far more lighthearted, almost to the level of the Billy Crystal Gregory Hines running scared at points, than the hard-to-sit-through sudden impact. So It's terrible for... Uh, <laughs> for a Dirty Harry film. a Dirty film. Harry film is terrible. It's uh, for Harry Callahan film. It's, you know, same thing. It's terrible. It's... Um, I never get that image of Jim Carrey strutting around like an idiot in a bedroom with somebody that's laying there like, it's, you know, she's the exorcist. And it's, it's, he's trying to do an Ozzy Osbourne video, like, you know, it's Bark at the Moon or something. And he's hamming up so bad, and it's fucking Welcome to the Jungle. And he can't even lip sync it right. I'm like, really? Yeah, it's just, there was something where uh, there's like toy cars being used as uh, some kind of devices to explode. And it's just like, come on, have we, have we come that low? Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah, no, I just, you know, next, I, I just, I just felt <laughs> as for, for a Dirty Harry movie, what I really would like to see is the agent Clint as a retired Dirty Harry faced with a, uh, a crime that he would come out of retirement to deal with. Now, you know, that would be interesting. He's actually made jokes about that, like, yeah, he's going to come out of retirement and, you know, push his walker around or something. <laughs> no, I, I think they could do something like that if they did it right. But that's the question. question. Next. So, uh, 1989, Pink Cadillac. What's your favorite radio station? K-Suck, you dork. 
Clint Coe's old truck turner is a skip tracer whose jobs include the hoary but oddly successful old trick of fooling the perp into thinking he won a contest. In this case, a date with Dolly Parton and a rodeo cowboy by working as a rodeo clown, cuffing the guy right after he gets thrown and they pin the raging bull. Yep, it's another down-home action comedy a la Every Which Way But Loose from stuntman turned largely front for Clint himself, director Buddy Van Horn, who never did anything but his trio for films for Clint. Obviously a hardened criminal, you can tell by the cupy bow lips. His foil here is comedy starlet Bernadette Peters of Silent Movie from our Burt Reynolds show, The Jerk and Heart Beeps, and she's a rather odd choice for a heroine. While not without charm, her diminutive stature, fright wig hair, and Clara Bow squeaky voice have always consigned her to broad Mel Brooks-style comedies and a long career in Broadway, but as a hapless ingenue and semi-rom-com romantic lead? This isn't helped by her role here as a white trash literal trailer park resident with a baby married to a MAGA-style white power militia member. That's right, this is every which way crossed with not only Truck Turner, but Don Johnson's dead bang or even Brian Brosworth's stone cold. Needless to say, they have zero chemistry and she drops so much snark. How are they supposed to be interested in each other again? Brown-begging bum and flasher. What do you think? Looks like a penis, only smaller. Apparently the latest scheme to fund Trump's latest golf outing and attempted coup involves <laughs> counterfeit money, and after she gets sent to court over it, she's fed up, dumps her baby off with a friend and runs, taking hubby's restored 59 caddy of the title, presumably inspired by the recent Aretha Franklin and slightly earlier Bruce Springsteen songs of the exact same name. Doesn't it seem just a little strange that this woman, who has no previous record at all, is the only person being indicted for possession of counterfeit money? Your Honor, she was the only one at home at the time of the raid and refuses to tell us anything about the crime. One could hardly blame her when she's got a fulsome prison class reunion going on right behind her. Of course, not only does Hubby want his baby back, no, not the fucking kid, the car, dummy, but the Nazis, which amusingly observed diversity by including one girl in their little tiki torch circle jerk, want it for the stash of funny money sequestered away in it. Clint is chasing the bounty on Peters for skipping bail on her aforementioned trial, but continues to catch other perks with her in tow, as well as taking her to see her new kid. Of course, that means a direct confrontation with the MAGA predecessors, who are there doing a home invasion so they could use the baby as ransom for the car and funny money. Clint gathers a bunch of his pals from foreign productions like Paul Benjamin of Escape from Alcatraz, Jeffrey Lewis and Bill McKinney of Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, and the Every Which Way films, and even Jim Carrey from The Deadpool, plus a random collection of Hollywood hanger-ons like William Hickey of 92 in the Shade and Sea of Love from our Peter Fonger and Al Pacino shows, Michael Disbaris of Ghoulies and Waxworks 2, and of all people, Ricky from Silent Night, Deadly Night 3, where he has the glass fishbowl on his head and exposed brain, chasing some goofy metalhead and his hot blind girlfriend, yeah, that one, Timothy Carhart as the head baddie. Did I mention Brian Adams' cameos? Don't know why he doesn't even show up on the soundtrack, which is all country music with a smattering of 50s, just like the Every Which Way films. Gee, I wonder what Clint listens to. It's a more or less formulaic 80s cop film comedy, so it's hardly as bad as his reputation, but the casting of Bernadette Peters as romantic lead, particularly when she's playing white trash with the closest of ties to white power types and the fucking baby, is simply bizarre. Well, well, he was probably banging Bernadette Peters. <laughs> it's very possible at that point. And, and who wouldn't? I mean, at that time, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I do it. Well, no, of course. That voice, man, and the snark she drops there, like, ah. No, Plus the cupid doll, like, okay. you know, she's no, a no, fire no, ball. No, I, had, I had a very, very short Irish girl from the time. She had the <laughs> highest voice possible. And I was like, shh, oh, God. shh, be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, sorry. Uh... So, it's a weird kind of movie because around this time period, now I'm going to get my music stuff in here. Aretha Franklin had a comeback uh, produced by Keith Richards, and she had a, and Bruce. So Bruce and Keith Richards did Pink Cadillac, 
Two different songs, by the way. Just same title. For yeah, I know, right? For Aretha, it's a very interesting album. It's actually pretty decent. And I'm like, okay. So then this out, this movie gets announced. I'm like, oh wow, we're gonna have some great music on this. No. <laughs> and, and, and you know, it's a strange kind of thing. Yeah, all I have to say is, like, here's my conjecture. Conjecture. That Trent and Brenda Peters are there. And, you know, Brenda Peters is in this movie, and, which explains a hell of a shitload. And, <laughs> and uh, well, it is what it is. It's, it's, it's an okay time waster. You know, it's a movie which yeah. is like this time waster. They're not horrible. You you guys, if you watch this, you will not send us hate mail. No, it, it's not as bad as its reputation by far. No. It's a typical shitty 80s cop slash comedy film. I mean, if you like stuff like, uh, and this is Digging Lower, but like Whoopi Goldberg and Fatal Beauty, or uh, like I said, Running Scared, the one with um, uh, oh, Billy Crystal and Gregory Hines. Or, what is better than this? But you know, yeah. same idea though. It's kind of the goofy cop comedy. Maybe even like... Uh, 48 hours, you know, oh, those cops. Wow. But it's the same idea. It's that kind we of thing. <laughs> I guess we could do that. <laughs> That'd be a little strange. Like, oh, please don't make me do an Eddie Murphy show. It, we have to talk about, like, Mr. Robinson's neighborhood and, <laughs> and Buckwheat. Are you kidding me? Come on, come on. Yeah. All right, what's next? Uh, that's actually the last one I covered, but I know you want to do The Unforgiven. Oh, is, is that where you left off? Yes, I stopped right there. <laughs> I had seen The Unforgiven when it came out, and I was oh my really God. not impressed. Okay, so, 1992. <laughs> You're going to give me a shitload of shit to do. Okay. 19- oh, I was just going to stop at Unforgiven. <laughs> Go ahead. 1992, Unforgiven, Clint Eastwood, uh, this movie with an interesting cast, for a change. Gene Hackman, Morgan Freeman, Richard Harris... Uh, Saul Rubinek, Francis Fisher, ex of uh, being experimented on by crazy doctors in the asylum, um, a couple other people. So what this was, was a revisionist Western where, okay, so if you, we could reimagine a Sergio Leone man with no name coming back to town, hooking up with his old friend and finding it's run by this old evil fuck who happens to be Gene Hackman. In one of his last films, and it was pretty brutal. It, it happened to be amazing. I mean, it won Best Picture, Best Director for Eastwood, which is a phenomenal thing, Best Supporting Actor for Gene Hackman, and so on and so forth. What do you have to say about this? Uh, like I said, I had seen it many years ago when it came mm-hmm. out, and I just wasn't impressed. It seemed like a very dusty, dingy sort of, um, again, American-feeling Western. It wasn't quite like Clint's earlier versions that we did discuss tonight mm-hmm. where they felt like an episode of the Waltons visually, aesthetically, but it was still like... It, it, was, it was almost like there's a cloud of dust everywhere. It was like it was in the middle of a dust ball. And I know that some people like that, but it's not the same thing as you get from a spaghetti western or a paella western or even a German western. It's very... I don't know. It just really instantly turned me off. And everybody seemed really super grubby and dirty. And it's like, oh, yeah, Mark, okay. So another, another one was ni- 1990s, The Rookie. Another Cleese with picture. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> uh, another Cleese with director picture with everybody's favorite, Charlie Sheen, Raul G. <laughs> Sonia Braga. So, you know, Clint and junior detective Charlie Sheen are on the 
trail of Raul and Sonia as bad people. And, and the healthy thing that was really stood in my mind to this day is where Clint gets tied up and Sonia Braga has sex with him. And it was pretty hot. So there was that. Um, 1990, Clint decides to be John Houston for White Hunter Black Heart. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's a, a long in the works film where, you know, they had to change the names and, you know, Clint Eastwood played John Wilson, which was actually John Houston. So Clint appropriating a cigar smoking Houston as a John Wilson. But I think one of the issues was the supporting cast was just not up to snuff. Yeah, we the, the closest we have is Marissa Berenson, George D. Sanza, Jeff Fahey, and these are all third string players, you know, at this point. And I'm not quite sure what happened, but it just became a picture nobody wanted to see. Therefore, based upon its like thirty million dollar budget, the film was a huge, huge misfire. Three years later, he worked with Wolfgang Peterson, one of our favorites, and he actually had a hit in the line of fire. He played an aged, semi-retired Secret Service guy working with Rene Russo, uh, defending a de facto president of the day against a bad guy. It was a serviceable action film, actually above average. If you like Eastwood action from a not quite elderly dude, who this was 1980. 93. And of course, we can't forget Eastwood's love film, The Bridges of Madison County. Oh my God. <laughs> You're going to touch that one? Wow. Yeah, 95. Okay. It was a big romantic novel by Richard. Wasn't that Meryl Streep? Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Richard Ravenes. Guy with the big name. And there's like the book all single woman had. Like, you know, this woman, the guy comes back into her life. Every kindled their love, blah, blah, blah. And everybody always thought it would have been somebody else. He decided to make it. He decided to co-star it with Meadow Street. It's actually shockingly touching. And the problem was, though, they didn't adapt things. So Meryl's playing an Italian war bride, so she has this accent. It's just played as Meryl Street. I don't know why they didn't change things. He's a guy that, that, play, that covers, uh, he likes taking pictures of Burgess. I like taking pictures of Burgess. I never found a chick of one to fuck me. So, yo, <laughs> things happen. But this this was a movie that really hit upon some kind of thing here. Space Cowboys was popped in 2000, which Clint directed with a lot of our heroes, like Tommy Lee Jones, Donald Sutherland, James Garner, William Devane, remember him? They had to go into space to do something. And believe it or not, for a space kind of movie with a bunch of retired U.S. Air Force guys going to space to fix something to save the Earth, it's actually entertaining. So there's that. 2004, Million Dollar Baby, brutal film. Clint plays a boxing promoter and trainer who works with Hillary Swank. Morgan Freeman's also in this. I uh, had some oomph to the cast. And he, you know, he reluctantly trains this woman to be a boxing champion. She suffers a severe, severe uh, injury. It's it's probably the most downbeat Clint Eastwood films. And I have to say though, it's it's a pretty good picture. It's 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 like his performance amazing 
Um, he's done other things. He's, in 2006, he did two World War II pictures, Likes of Our Fathers, Letters from Iwo Jima. I've seen them. And I would have to say two things I wanted to mention. Gran Torino, 2008. We decided to take this film about a racist Korean war vet living in uh, California in a Vietnamese neighborhood. And the local Asians are being terrorized by their own. So he's an elderly man. And, uh, you know, he hates them. He spews out vile, vicious, on PC language, and he finds out that the, you know they've been taking young Asian women and selling them for sex. And some of the guys have been like not wanting to deal with this stuff, and he becomes a kinship with some of these people, trying to help them out. It ends with him being killed, which is a really big downer in a Eastwood movie. And Gran Torino is pretty freaking terrific. Although, like, it's like all movies where you don't want to see the heroes die, right? Uh, the 1517 to Paris from three, four years ago was based on a true story about uh, American military vets who took a train to Paris and tried to follow a plot to blow up a train. And the last thing I saw was from two years ago, and it was called Cry Macho. And it was pretty fucking depressing. <laughs> yeah. Why do you watch these things? <laughs> because... because Modern era films are just so bad. I mean, you, you find something that's like stupidly entertaining, you know, wasteful, like a Marvel film or something. But yeah, no, most of it was just crap. Oh, Cry Macho, twenty twenty one. He played a. Let's my notes here. Played an agent, a retired rodeo performer, who is sent by some guys to go to Mexico to retrieve a Latino kid. Part of a deal. Go to Mexico, get my kid. And, of course, he's an old man. And uh, Dwight Yoakam. You remember Dwight Yoakam? Yeah, sure. Yeah, Dwight Yoakam's in this. And, uh, you know, Link gets beat up pretty much. Yeah, he's about 90 years old in spite. And it's it's an interesting movie. It's it's like, okay, so what do we do if we have an aged veteran film actor doing a part like this? You know, how do we handle this? And uh, I think somebody in more shape physically... Like, uh, Schwarzenegger seems to be doing well, and uh, and Sly seems to be doing well, but I think Clint, Clint has got to the age. Yeah. age to the point where, hey, you know, there's some things you can't do. Well, come on, look at that uh, empty chair speech. The guy's clearly lost his mind. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately, you know. And, and, but this this was a rough movie to watch because it was, just, it was beaten up repeatedly, and yet it's a picture he directed. I'm like, yeah, as as the site for that Stallone picture where the last, uh, I think it was the last Rambo, where Sly's housekeeper said her child was abducted and he went to Mexico and he's an old man now and he had to rescue this kid from the Mexican sex trade and bring her back to America. And that was so much better done, so much well done. Yeah, you know, just because he physically and, 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 and actorly wise, he, he could do it. And they clearly at this point just can't. You know? So that's the last thing I have to say on, on Clint Eastman. Yeah. So, you know, it's been a, uh, I've certainly made a lot of jokes about his bad politics and some of the questionable uh, nature of the Dirty Harry films. But, you know, they did a lot of good films. He was uh, a decent looking character actor that wound up somehow basically by uh, a string of who you know in some circumstance. 
getting catapulted to top-tier stardom for a long time. He said a lot of stuff that was, these lines from these films that managed to become quote-unquote iconic because of you know, Reagan's adoption of them. A bigger lunatic than Clint ever was. <laughs> but, you know, he made a lot of good films. I mean, whether you like them or not, the first couple of Dirty Harry films, and three or four of them, were actually really good in their own way, especially if you like that kind of genre of cop films. At least the first two Leone films totally invented the entire spaghetti western genre. There's really no two ways about that. You know, he's done films that were fun along the way, like The Gauntlet. He's done films that were surprisingly not his style, and really making a stretch, like Tightrope. And he's done some that were dumb and hokey, but people love them, like those Every Which Way But Loose films. And, you know, it's it's not the kind of guy that you can totally ignore when you're doing so many of these, you know, names of, I don't want to say the past, but, you know, the era that we're touching on, you know, from the 60s and 70s and right. going into the 80s. You can't really avoid him forever. We we talked about doing a show on him a long time ago, back when we were doing, like, Schwarzenegger and Bronson and all that. I'm like, I don't know, Clint Eastwood, I got my issues with him. But, you know, i got to say that a lot of these films were really good. He's not always the best director, especially on westerns, but, you know, he pulls it off. He's not terrible. He's certainly done a few things that were pretty good. And, uh, you know, despite everything else, I do really enjoy some of these films just on the same level as other films that I love. So uh, there's something to be said for all this, despite his you know, wackiness and bullshitting about uh, being an army hero or whatever. I mean, he's really just kind of a lifeguard, apparently. You know, there's a lot of things that are questionable there. But, you know, again, you, you can't ignore him, and he definitely did some good work. So... Thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little drawing room chat on Clint Eastwood. Uh, next time, uh, we will be doing, of all people, George Siegel. Yes. So if you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker or musician who'd like to join us on air, drop us a line at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also at Twitter, at weirdscenes1. And, of course, we're on Podbean, uh, thirdeyecinema.podbean.com. And we're on iTunes. You just look us up under Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast. If you're particular, the ID is 553-402-044. Uh, we're also on Spotify and Amazon Podcasts. Again, look us up under Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast. Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine brought to you by the new and improved Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. So anything else you want to say to close out? Yeah, but it's a mouthful. Uh, <laughs> no, thank you for listening to the show. We, we respect this one. We all we respect all the artists we recover. Well, that's what we cover. Them. We cover them, and uh, we wouldn't waste our time if we didn't think anybody's worth covering. You know? Exactly. And because uh, a lot of work goes into this, we have to do research. We have to watch these bloody things, so on and so forth. And uh, so, thank you for listening. And yeah, George Siegel, a unlikely subject, but no, not really, because he he's a terrific journeyman actor, and I think he he really. Time is due for tribute to him. I think we're going to do a good job with him. It's very soon. Yeah, and he definitely, you think of him as a comedy guy, but he definitely moves back and forth between uh, pretty strong drama and dramatic roles. Yeah. And, you know, we're talking about war films and things, too, and not just like, you know, boring dramas, you know, and comedy. And he is, can be very funny and very strong actor, surprisingly so. So we will see you soon. Very soon. For George Siegel. Thank you for listening. We always appreciate you guys listening. Um, yes. If anybody would like to comment, please do. You want to join us, please do. And we're always looking for suggestions as well. But we, we between the two of us, we got enough. <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, we're, we're always looking out. We have open minds. We have yes. open minds. Thank you so much. Yep. 
several more shows coming up. We yes. already planned them, so. <laughs> yeah. All right, so see you soon. See you soon. at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurd and look at the headlines politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. We try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio.
Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without his scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of New Age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner and fellow seekers of truth in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell with Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself. Discuss the beloved, the comedian, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in turn on and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. After the beep, please record a message. Afterwards, your message will be played back to you. Hello. Welcome to hell. Hello again. <laughs> you still there? Okay, can you hear me? Wow. What is hello? that? Yes, hello? My yes. computer is showing me I have no internet connection. <laughs> How's your router? I can't hear anything. Okay. Hold on. I'm troubleshooting here. I know <laughs> you might be hearing me, but I can't hear you. Okay. Give me a second. Mm-hmm. Hello. Hello. Hello, hello. Hold on. Uh, yep. If you can hear me, I'm going to sign off and try to troubleshoot. Give me a few minutes, please. Thanks. Okie dokie. Hello, can you hear me now? Yeah, you might get me on one channel. Can you hear me? I hear you. You sound fine at this point. Okay. Yeah, sorry about that. I, uh, there are all these tutorials. <laughs> <laughs> For this for this thing, and I've actually been watching it. You know, they're pretty good. They're they're really for the for the beginner and the layman. And a link to their own YouTube page, which you can only access if you have this thing. And my plan for this weekend, 
was for today to devote to this and try to do a podcast uh, for my, you know, Colors of Prague thing. Right. With this new setup, which might take my whole day. And next thing I know, she came home uh, late last night, and she's like, uh, you know, we're going to Christie's on Sunday. I'm like, huh? Oh, it's her daughter's birthday. I'm like, I I told you. (laughs) I would have remembered. I don't think she fucking told me. (laughs) I don't want to go to a kid's party. (laughs) You figure you get out of that when you're like, you know, all your friends get out of their 20s or whatever. They already have their freaking kids. (laughs) Well, it's it's her niece, you know, and her sister died last year. You know, when she went to the Philippines, her sister sister actually passed when she was here, which I'm sure... She doesn't say a lot, but I'm sure it was really tough, you know? Yeah. So, you know, that's in Denise, you know, the, the daughter of the sister. Yeah. Um, she's a party girl. <laughs> and I said, I said, well, a couple of things. You know, I, I got this Roxy Music Show Monday. So, I, you know, I want my Sunday to do the show with you. Mm-hmm. And after that, just relax, read, listen to music, just wait Monday. I work, get off work early, and then, you know, chill and then get into Manhattan. So you're going to blow out my whole day. For, I know these things. Last time I was there, I was there for hours. They drank like fucking <laughs> fish tanks. Yeah. You want something else, Uncle Luis? No, no, no. Oh, we got we got this. We got that. <clears throat> and you really, I barely ate because most of the food, they, I was promised like American food. It was Probably all Filipino food. Oh, that salty shit? Oh, jeez. <laughs> Which I, I shouldn't do anyway, you know? Yeah. And, and, and it's greasy as fuck. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's that. That's sorry. I, I Yeah, I, that's why I called you, like, last night. Like, oh, man, I hate to cancel this. You know, like, not like I'm sick or an emergency. It doesn't worry. Shit happens. And, you know, remember how many problems we had with blog talk with all the technical issues last minute? And I used to have that problem bringing guests on because I was interviewing people for Third Eye every week. And it was like, every time there's some kind of fucking problem. Blog Talk always did a last-minute thing, or Skype did a last-minute thing. Or Come on, it was always a major issue. So, you know, I'm used to this shit. Yeah, what I was trying to do earlier, which didn't work, was, uh, I, I guess I got to watch another tutorial, or watch it over, because the XLR goes in the box. I'm actually using my Shure Super 3, uh, 355, which is like one of the best mics you can get, even for singing. Yeah. I can hear it. But when I'm using another thing like this, her jack shit. So what I did was, uh, and I guess the cat got at this. <laughs> or we, uh, I found this old uh, headphone with a with a, you know the mic here, and, yeah. uh, and I was like, you know what? I quickly went on Amazon and I, I got a much better from uh, I forgot the name already. It's 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 a really good headphone with a with a mic like this, but it's even better. Okay. And the reviews are, you know, this one has to be put to sleep. Somebody chewed on the uh, foam. <laughs> I wonder who. It was you. <laughs> you did it in your sleep. <laughs> you were loaded one night and you chewed on the <laughs> I had to look for this, man. <laughs> I was like, I know I have it somewhere. Yeah, because normally when I was using the USB mic, headphones, you know, goes in a separate thing and, you know, it's, it's not connected. Right. But when you use this connector, it goes in the XLR, and then there's a headphone jack. So I'm hearing it. Mm-hmm. But again, if I'm using another application, I don't hear jack shit, which I'm sure it is just something learning curve. You know? yeah. I'm sure I'll probably hear it if I turn the monitors on. But then 
that's the monitors. Mm-hmm. And I know in the past we have problems with interference and feedback, and you know, I don't want to take too much that. Yeah. So luckily, this sounds okay. Why don't you see how this sounds okay. and uh, let me know? All right. Okay. okay. Hello again. Well, yeah, uh, slightly less space and a little thinner because mm-hmm. this this old gaming headphone mic set I'm using right. is a uh, you know stereo to uh, you know uh, male to fe- I can't find a fucking adapter, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, which I was scrambling right before I opened Skype. I'm like to see a lovely lady from I don't know where the fuck she is. Hi, I would like to add you as a friend. Do you get those on Skype? Unfortunately, I do sometimes. I always just block them, ignore them. <laughs> yeah, because the only person the only person I talk to is you. When I open them up, I get several. I'm like, oh, yeah. yeah I'm going to add like... you as a friend, please. <laughs> it's all like those porn people trying to go and <laughs> grab your account or whatever the hell they do. Do you know that happened to a well-known writer in the genre? I think I heard that. And is it somebody who just retired? Oh, uh, yeah. I think yes. Yes. <laughs> Like oh, that. that's not who I was thinking, but okay, good. Okay, yeah, I guess it happened to more than one person. Yeah, well, I've heard it happen. I've seen him in Friends on Facebook, let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't well, have, no, no he, he put it out there publicly. Yeah, he did, because he's like, yeah, it doesn't matter, I really don't use that account anymore anyway, so just ignore it if you get anything from there. <laughs> yeah, so go ahead, uh, take it. <laughs> he's like, she took all my money, I'm like, what are you talking mm. about? No, that's a horrible one. No, I didn't hear that one. Okay. Yeah, he says she, she took all his life savings, I'm like, holy shit. Yeah, you gotta watch those. Yeah, and I felt really bad. I, I real, I don't even know the guy that well, but I just felt so terrible. Like, what? Well, I met her online. I'm like, oh, you a fucking idiot. Yeah, exactly. Ever hear catfishing? Jesus. <laughs> I mean, come on. How old? Yeah, he's older than me. Yeah, but it's like, like, how old are we? And you know, you're you're getting, you're catching up to me. Yeah, you know? it's like, yeah. but how old are we in this general field of age that you know, go out there, meet people. You know, don't don't. don't if you meet people online, which I used to do back in the day, you mm-hmm. meet them physically. Then you could see if you connect. Don't, don't you know, how the fuck you drain your account? I don't, you know, he didn't get into it. I didn't want to yeah, ask. no point in getting into that. It's pretty obvious what happened. Yeah, I just felt terrible. Though. I felt, you know, I was just like, oh, damn. <laughs> Like I say, I see something I don't know, and it's not like a friend of a friend, and I look into it, see if they're okay or whatever. I'm like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Block it. Don't touch it. Mm. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, the last couple, I only did two so far since mm. I got my backdrop stand. And like, it's not wide enough. I'm like, come on. It was supposed <laughs> to be wide enough. And I went to the hardware store, and I got these, I don't know, four-foot dowels. Mm-hmm. And I, I even brought the extender with me, so it fit. I said, oh, okay, cool. So that was another thing I was going to work with today. She came home, what are these big sticks? I'm like, well, I was going to do all this stuff today. But, you know, cause I figured Seastman's going to be a long show. So, you know, yeah. it's, it's <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to get today. Um, and don't forget, like I said, if you are good sometime this week or whatever, yeah. I'm good to go with the next show already, too. Both of them are done. This one and the next show. <laughs> yeah, no, I could do the next one. Uh, what did I say last week? You didn't say. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, okay. No, that's fine. That works. All right. All right. So do you want to sign off or just go right into Clint? Um, you know what? Yeah, let's, have, let's go right into Clint. We already did the test. <laughs> that's no fine. Not to... He's 92. Oh, God. Really? May 31st is his birthday. He just turned 92. 
You know, he changed his party. No, I didn't know that. He's now registered as a libertarian. Okay. Oh, yes, I did know that. You're correct. I did uh, actually have that in the intro. This little stuff that sometimes gets edited out, and sometimes I leave it in for a laugh. <laughs> Depends how funny it is. I don't want to go to a kid's party. <laughs>